there is a kind of time constant for how likely a civilization is going to uh, be around for. There is a kind of uh, half-life for civilizations, but uh, the risk of a civilization collapsing doesn't seem to increase with time. If there was some kind of decadence building up, then you should expect uh, that over time it became more likely that they crashed. So civilizations probably collapse because of bad luck rather than there is something bad building up. Now, why do, do we have this bad luck? Is it just that it's very unlikely events that conspire to bring things down? Or is it that there's something intrinsic? And even worse, bad luck is rather hard to defend against. You can imagine a Dyson sphere covered uh, with rabbit's foots and uh, the horseshoes hoping to ward <laughs> off bad luck, but that's unlikely to work. Probably the best way of warding off bad luck is kind of having multiple copies, uh, having backup civilizations. And if one crashes, the other ones shake their heads, you know, pick up the pieces and resettle that part of the space. Hey listeners, Rob Whitland here, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, I'm back with repeat guest and audience favorite, Anders Sandberg, uh, talking about many things, uh, but in particular, the work he has done on a hopefully forthcoming book called Grand Futures, in which he attempts to think about what living things might one day be able to accomplish uh, in our universe, given the laws of physics as we currently understand them. He and I talk about whether there's a best possible world or we can just keep improving things forever, uh, how you could improve what happens when two galaxies collide with one another, the impediments to artificial intelligence or humans making it all the way to other stars in one piece, how the universe might end a million trillion years in the future, the grabby aliens resolution to the Fermi paradox, whether civilizations become more likely to fall apart uh, the longer that they have existed the best way to extract energy from matter that could ever exist, black hole bombs, the likelihood that life from elsewhere has already visited Earth, and a dismaying number of other topics. All right, without further ado, I bring you Anders Sandberg. Today, I'm speaking with Anders Sandberg. Anders is a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University, where he looks at low probability, high impact risks, the capabilities of future imaginable technologies and very long range futures. Uh, he has a background in computer science, neuroscience and medical engineering, but honestly, seems to have some level of amateur interest in almost every area of science that I'm aware of. Uh, to give you a sense of that, here are the titles of our two past interviews with Anders. Uh, episode 29, Anders Sandberg on three new resolutions for the Fermi Paradox and how to colonize the universe. And episode 33, Anders Sandberg on what if we ended aging, solar flares, and the annual risk of nuclear war. Anders is maybe actually best well known in the, in, in the broader world for doing a deep dive into what would happen if the entire Earth were replaced with blueberries. It's not what you think. But for many years now, he has been working on a more serious academic book called Grand Futures, in which he plans to address questions like how good could the future be, or how much might be achieved, uh, and what do we need in, to do in order to get there. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Anders. Thank you. It's delightful to be here again. I hope to talk about, well, how good the future could be and ask about possible impediments to complex life and machines spreading beyond our solar system. But first, yeah, tell us about the vision for this book, uh, Grand Futures. So it all actually began in a hailstorm on a Dutch beach. I have been giving a talk at a motivational meeting for a leadership school. And the theme of the day was, what's your vision? And we're supposed to be having these silent walks along the beach to think about our vision, whether that was for startup or nonprofit. And I realized I probably need to write a book. 
I realized that I have a lot of research all over the place. I have a lot of things to say and I can spread it across a lot of papers or I can try to put it together into one big vision. And there is a reason you want to have that big vision and that is to give hope, to give cohesion, to actually say this is a direction we might want to be going in or at least some directions might be worth exploring. And that's how I started. I started that afternoon sketching out some chapters that ought to be in the book. And then I kept on going. And it's been a few years since then. Yeah, when was that? So this must have been back in, I think, 2017. No, maybe even 2016, because it was November and uh, really rough weather on that beach. Uh, But that got me started. And the first chapter I actually wrote happened probably next year. I spent some time thinking about what should be in this kind of book. What are all the possible chapters? And then I tested it out on various friends and uh, they told me, Anders, cut out the first third. That is about how to solve all the world's problems. Uh, That's a book on its own. It's an interesting book, but uh, you're not going to write that. So this is actually two thirds of a much bigger hypothetical book that I would probably (laughs) never be finished writing. Yeah, on, on life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, g- give us a, like. What are some of the questions that you uh, hope to address in, in in Grand Futures, and maybe what what reaction do you hope it might inspire among among people once they one day get to read it? So I want to try to fi- figure out if we get our act together and survive, then what are the different kinds of limits to what we would do as a maturing civilization or some future super civilization? What does the universe really allow in terms of the good life or grand goals? And of course, there is an interesting value question here, what we mean by good and uh, grand. I'm leaving that until relatively late in the book. I'm mostly looking at the physics, like what could you do if you really want them? So typical questions are, how rich could they become in terms of material wealth? How sustainably could they live on Earth? Uh, What about settling the solar system? What about settling the galaxy? What about settling the universe? Where are the constraints there? How much can we make matter do? And what about energy? How much energy is there for us? And what could we use it for? How much entropy is there? And what can we use that for? How much computation can be achieved? And so on and so on. So I'm trying to see where the limits are. Now, the problem is, of course, predicting the future is very hard, especially since we don't know what future people will have as goals. So we can only say inside this vast space of possibilities, some things that they will achieve. And it sometimes is interesting to know, are we close to the edges? Are we very constrained? Or is it that there are some directions where we could just do a lot more? Yeah, I suppose the the book, uh, at least the, the parts that I've read about, quite heavy on physics and engineering and chemistry because you kind of you're trying to see within the bounds of science, within the bounds of what we understand about the universe, what would be the very best possible outcome from various different points of view. So, got you know, if, if humanity just stayed on Earth for a long time, you know, what is you know what what might be accomplished in in the billion years that 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 we have left? Uh, you know, if we could if we could get to other places in the galaxy, then what what might be uh, we'd be able to accomplish? And you know. Is that possible? Is it actually possible to spread out to the galaxy? And what what might that look like? What kind of technologies would they would would you use? And how would you get energy? Uh, and and for how long? All of these kinds of things. So, if, if yeah, if you're into speculative science fiction stuff, uh, then, uh, or like hard science fiction, then I think that this is going to massively scratch the itch for you. Yeah, I'm hoping to make it at least useful for a science fiction author, so they can look up what's the performance of my wormhole or my space drive <laughs> uh, to check in a table in chapter twenty. Oh yes, uh, it's on the line five. 
Yeah, I think this might be uh, the academic book that, that launches a thousand science fiction <laughs> novels. A question that came in from a, uh, from a listener, though, is what's the decision relevance of Grand Futures for the typical 80,000 hours podcast listener? Is this mostly just a fun exercise that might be relevant to people in a million years time, but not so relevant now? I think that's a very important question. And I think one reason I started on this was I realized we need to write about hope. Uh, a lot of my research is about existential risk and the global catastrophes and other dreadful things. And quite often journalists ask me, but how do you sleep at night? And uh, I usually explain, well, uh, actually quite well, because I'm thinking I'm doing my part to reduce some of this risk. But the deeper answer is I'm really optimistic. And you have to be optimistic about the future to want to save it. If the future actually could be very grand, we have a very good reason to save it. But there is another decision-relevant part, and that is, what do we need to achieve different forms of grandness? What kinds of values are at stake? So there are some forms of ticking clocks in this universe. We're kind of running out of certain resources. Deuterium, for example, most of that was made in the Big Bang, and it's mostly being consumed uh, now. Eventually, we might run out of it. Uh, the galaxies uh, are they're moving apart because of expansion of the universe. And in a few hundred billion years, you will not be able to reach other galaxy clusters. Now, if you need to do that, or if you want to do it, uh, if there is some value in going to these other galaxy clusters, the clock is ticking and you actually need to get your act together. Of course, it's a rather slow tick, so it's not super urgent. But it's interesting to investigate this domain because there might be other clocks that are ticking faster. So knowing how much time and space we have to move inside is actually quite valuable. And I also think there are many non-trivial questions about coordination. There are some problems that we probably need to decide on relatively early on to set up standards, practices. So when we expand outwards, whether that is in time or space, we actually have ways of keeping things together. After all, if you have an intergalactic spacefaring civilization, one side will not be able to tell the other side what it has found or the deals it made with some aliens it found uh, until a billion years later, at which point you might end up with very inconsistent uh, negotiations. Similarly, there might be very long-term projects where we want to transmit information to the very far future. How do we do that? And can we set up contracts so I can make a deal like, uh, okay, wake me up in a billion or a trillion years when the universe is more to my liking and I can be fairly certain that I do get woken up at the right time. So they, the book is really about these big things. What does it take to achieve them? And that then allows us to focus on the things we really care about, what we need to start researching or constructing now, quite a lot of it is going to be making the tools to make the tools to make the tools or making the instrument to figure out some of the big questions so then we know what tools to make. Let's talk about some of the things that you discuss, uh, so some of the questions that you try to answer in uh, in, in grand in grand futures. There's there's so much stuff in this. In the, uh, the, the draft is fourteen hundred pages, so there's there's an insane amount of stuff in there. And I and I must admit, I didn't I didn't actually get get to read the entire thing. I think we're just going to kind of jump around all over the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more fun uh, that it's, way. It's, it's more fun, and also would have been a lot of work for me to try to figure out how to structure this in a cleverer way. Um, okay, yeah. F first one is: What are some futures that you think could plausibly happen that are amazing uh, from from very various different, different points of view. So, so one amazing future is humanity gets its act together, solves existential risk, uh, develops molecular nanotechnology and atomically precise manufacturing, masters biotechnology, 
and turns itself sustainable, turns half of a planet into a wilderness preserve that can kind of evolve on its own, keeping uh, to the other half uh, where you have high material standards in a totally sustainable way that can keep on going essentially as long as the biosphere is going. And long before that, of course, people starting to take steps to maintain the biosphere by putting up a solar shield, etc. And others, of course, go off first settling the solar system, then other solar systems, then other galaxies, building this super civilization in the nearby part of the universe that can keep together against the expansion of the universe, while others go off to really far corners. So you can be totally safe uh, that intelligence and consciousness remains somewhere, and they might even try different social experts. That's one future. That one keeps on going essentially as long as the stars are burning. And at that point, many turn to actually taking uh, matter and putting it into the dark black hole, the accretion disks, and extracting the energy and keep on going essentially up until the point where you get proton decay, which might be curtains. But this is something north of 10 to the power of 36 years. That's a lot of future. Most of it, long after the stars have burned out, and most of the beings there are going to be utterly dissimilar to us. But you could imagine another future, and that is that in the near future, we develop ways of uh, doing brain emulation, and we turn ourselves into a software species. Maybe not everybody. There are going to be stragglers who kind of going to maintain uh, the biosphere on the Earth and are going to be frowning at those crazies that in some sense committed suicide by becoming software. The software people are, of course, just going to be smiling at them, uh, but uh, thinking that we got the good deal. We got on this infinite space we can design endlessly. And quite soon they realize mm, we need more compute. So they turn a few uh, other planets into the solar, of the solar system into computing centers. But much of the cultural development happens in the virtual space. And if that doesn't need to expand too much, you might actually end up with a very small and portable humanity. I did a calculation uh, some years ago that if you actually covered a part of the Sahara Desert with solar panels and use quantum dot cellar automaton computing, you could keep mankind kind of in an uploaded form running there indefinitely with a rather minimal impact on the biosphere. So in that case, maybe the future of humanity is instead going to be a, to be a little black square on a continent and <laughs> not making much fuss in the outside universe. I hold that slightly unlikely because sooner or later somebody is going to say, yeah, but what about space? What about just exploring that material world I heard so much about from grandfather when he was talking? In my <laughs> youth, we were actually embodied. So I'm not certain this is a stable future. The, the thing that interests me is that I like open-ended futures. I think it's kind of worrisome if you come up with an idea of a future that is so perfected, but it requires that everybody do the same thing. That is both pretty unlikely, given how we are organized as you people right now, and systems that force us to do the same thing are terrifyingly dangerous. It might be a useful thing to have a singleton system that somehow keeps us from committing existential risk suicide. But if that impairs our autonomy, we might actually have lost quite a lot of value. Might still be worth it, but uh, you need to think carefully about the trade-off. And if its values are bad, even if it's subtly bad, that might mean that we lose most of the future. I also think that there might be really weird futures that we can't think well about. So... Right now, we have certain things that we value and evaluate as important and good. We think about the good life, we think about pleasure, we think about justice. 
we have a whole things, set of things that are very dependent on our kind of brains. Those brains didn't exist a few million years ago. You could make an argument that uh, some higher apes actually have a bit of a primitive sense of justice. They get very annoyed when there is unfair treatment. But as you go back in the time, you find simpler and simpler organisms, and there is less and less of these moral values. There might still be pleasure and pain, so it might have very well be that the fishes swimming around the oceans during the Silurian, yeah, they already had values uh, and disvalues. But go back uh, another few hundred million years, and there might not even have been that. There was still life, which might have some intrinsic value, but much less of it. Where I'm getting at this is that value might have emerged in a stepwise way. We started with plasma near the Big Bang, and then eventually got systems that might have intrinsic value because of a complex life. And then maybe systems that get intrinsic value because they have consciousness and qualia, and maybe another step where we get uh, justice and uh, thinking about moral stuff. Why does this process stop with us? It might very well be that there are more kinds of value waiting in the wings, so to say, if we get brains and systems that can handle them. So that would suggest that maybe in a hundred million years, uh, we find the next level of value. And that's actually way more important than the previous ones all taken together. And it might not end with that mysterious whatever value it is. There might be other things that are even more important waiting to be discovered. So this raises this disturbing question that we actually have no clue how the universe ought to be organized to maximize value or doing the right thing, whatever it is, because we might be too early on. We might be like a primordial slime thinking that, yeah, photosynthesis is kind of the biggest uh, value there is and (laughs) totally unaware that there could be things like awareness. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so... The first one there was a very big future where humanity and its descendants go on and grab a lot of matter and energy uh, across the universe and, and survive for a very long time. So, that, so there's the potential, at least with all of that energy, for a lot of beings to exist for a very long time and do all kinds of interesting stuff. Then there's the very modest uh, future where maybe we just try to keep our present population and we try to shrink our footprint as much as possible so that we're interfering with, I guess, nature or the, or the rest of the universe as little as possible. And then there's this wild card, which is maybe we discover that there's values that are totally beyond human comprehension where we go and do something uh, very strange that we don't even have a name for at the moment. In the first one, the big future, what what sort of stuff might people do in this very big future with all kinds of beings? Are there any uh, maybe under underrated or underappreciated options for what people could do with all of that time? Uh, I, I think uh, one underappreciated thing is, of course, if we can survive for a very long time individually, we need to reorganize our minds and memories in interesting ways. So there is a kind of standard argument you sometimes hear if you're as a transhumanist like I am uh, to talk about life extension where somebody cleverly points out, but Anders, you would change across your lifetime. If it's long enough, you will change into a different person. So actually, you don't get an indefinitely extended life. You just get a very long life for it. I think this is actually an interesting objection, but I'm fine with turning into a different future person. Anders Prime might have developed from Anders in an appropriate way. We all endorse every step along the way. And the fact that Anders Prime now is a very different uh, person is fine. And then Anders Prime turns into Anders Biss and so on. A long sequence along a long thread. But a more plausible thing that might happen if you have these resources is, of course, that you actually expand your memory. You can remember your childhood. You sometimes reorganize yourself. You become a sequence of different beings 
that have the right kind of memories and relationship across time. And this probably has to grow. Otherwise, you, if you've got a finite state space, eventually you're going to just keep on repeating. So that is one thing. You actually would have self-design happening over very vast periods of time. But another activity you might want to do is actually, of course, spreading life and complexity across the universe. And there is this interesting thing about both seeing what's out there and then actually spreading the right kind of thing there. So we can totally imagine putting Earth-like life on a terrestrial planets that don't have it. And that's presumably going to turn into biospheres a bit like our own. But what about the other worlds? There might be other forms of complexity that could exist that don't yet exist. Could we design life that works in liquid nitrogen? It might be that emergence of life doesn't naturally happen on that kind of liquid nitrogen worlds, but we might be able to make it happen. Uh, if you think about Mercury, it's not an environment that's hospitable to any kind of life we know. But you could imagine making robots that are solar powered, that uh, mine the surface, and you make a kind of robotic ecosystem. And I can totally imagine a future civilization doing that as an art project or as a spiritual project, thinking that we need that complexity. We also design these self-replicating robots to actually be able to evolve. Normally, when you have your replicators around, you definitely don't want them to evolve and do stuff on their own. But in this case, you might actually want to have it as freely evolving as life. There is interesting ethical questions here, of course, where some environmental ethicists argue that even a biotic environment deserve respect and uh, actually the kind of shaped complexity that exists in a sand dune on Mars matters quite a lot and uh, it's not improved that humans put their footprint on it. The problem is, of course, that footprint uh, from the boot of one of the settlers from Muskville, Mars, it's also shaped complexity. It's kind of a really weird outcome of evolution of brains of African savannah that eventually ends up producing spacecraft, rockets, and a space settlement. So it's not entirely obvious how to play these different aesthetics and ethical values against each other, which might actually be a very big activity. I can imagine environmental impact debates about these megascale engineering and other projects being run super fast by super intelligent future entities. And they're still going to be spending quite a lot of time trying to do the right thing, which might still elude them. It might still be way too much politics. It's a little bit like one little problem we're going to run into in the 10 to the power of 20 years. Uh, If the stars in the Milky Way keep on rotating like we do right now, they are occasionally running close to each other. So you get two body encounters. And typically that means a random exchange of velocity. And that means that sometimes a star gets escape velocity and actually leaves the galaxy. It flies out into outer darkness. The other star loses energy and moves closer to the central black hole. So over these very vast time spans, the galaxy dissolves. It flings off some stars and loses angular momentum and energy, and other stars end up dropping into the black hole. So if nobody does anything... Beyond this point, the galaxy turns very boring. It's basically a black hole and uh, they're surrounded by a dark matter halo. This is something we probably might want to avoid. We might want to nudge the stars into the right kind of orbit. Again, imagine the arguments about what the right kind of orbits are. And there is this more imminent problem in the Andromeda galaxy coming right at us. In about 5 billion years, we need to think about how to handle this merger. Now... These problems are interesting because of the coordination problems, and they might require great coordination over very long distances where civilizations might actually be utterly different from each other. 
So that's another thing you might uh, do. But I have this feeling that just like life on Earth is mostly single-celled organisms. Most of them are living down in the Earth's crust uh, or in, on the seafloor. And then there is a few more advanced organisms and a few that are making uh, lectures and thinking about what does it all mean. I think this vast future is probably going to be full of a lot of simple creatures and simple minds, and then a few bigger ones and a few super smart ones. The super smart ones might even think that they are in charge because they see things most clearly. They, uh, they know what's going on. But there is way more minds on the intermediate levels that actually are ha hopefully having great lives. And they're actually saying, yeah, this is for us. Uh, yeah, there are some super Jupiter brains uh, running the galactic merger process, but we're having so fun in this solar system. And then there are, of course, the smaller ones. And hopefully a lot of the counterparts of the microorganisms that actually constitute the vast majority of consciousness in the universe that might not even have a clue what's going on, but we're still having a good life. I think this is what happens if we extrapolate the current distribution in the Earth's ecosystem. It's not obvious that this has to be the case. Maybe it's easier to merge everything together into one gigantic galactic supermind. Uh, maybe the Borg Collective, where everything is part of everything, is the natural outcome. I think that sounds very, very unlikely uh, because it's a very inefficient way of organizing uh, any form of information processing. You generally want to compartmentalize just because of competition and complexity reasons. I think there is a natural tendency to get this unequal distribution of how big the minds are. But the strength of communication and how they flicker between them and even the kind of social aspects of this might be utterly different. Just think about the way corporations today relate to each other. Some are doing mergers, some are forming consortia, some of them are subcontractors, some of them are clients and so on. They form complicated supply chains, some of them form uh, networks and lobbying groups, some of them even form cartels and conspiracies. I think we could perhaps see some similar complexity going on among future minds. And that suggests to me that the future is going to be rather full of events. It's very easy when you do sketch a grand future to lose sight of that uh, there are going to be beings there. There are going to be individuals. There are probably going to be people, even though these people might be rather weird people. And there is going to be stuff happening on the local scale that corresponded to daily life events. It's just that we can't see very clearly what these daily life events are, but they're probably going to be the counterpart of Mrs. Brown going to fetch a cup of tea, even though this might be in a vast post-human future. So many people who are kind of put off from ideas of a grand future say, there's nobody there. And it's true. My book doesn't deal very much with the post-human Mrs. Brown in a galaxy far away because I can't say anything about what she likes and what she does or whether she's a she, etc., but we can kind of see that there is potential for future that have room for that kind of complexity, that local detail. I personally don't think these kind of slim futures where everything is unified and, the, and the identical everywhere are particularly likely. I don't think they're stable. But that's an interesting conjecture. Yeah, speaking of which, in, in the book you talk about violence and war a bit. If, if the galaxy is mostly settled, do, do you think there is likely to be or could, could be wars? And if so, what, 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 what do you think they might look like? Yeah, I think it's an interesting problem. Why do anybody go to war? And there is actually a serious debate about the rationality of war. And um, there is serious disagreement about the motives. And 
it's a bit unclear to me whether you would see advanced civilizations going to war. I think you sometimes can sketch out possibilities. You could imagine the radical negative utilitarian civilization not wanting that other civilization to have a lot of resources because they're actually causing pain and suffering, even though they are saying that on average we're making things better. So they would have a reason to try to remove resources from that pain-inducing civilization and they would make very bad neighbors. Now, the really interesting question is, How much is there an attacker versus defender advantage in this kind of advanced future? So right now, if somebody's sitting on Mars and you're going to war against them, it's very hard to hit them. You don't have a weapon that can hit them very well. But in theory, if you fire a missile after a few months, it's going to arrive and maybe hit them. But they have a few months to move away. So distance actually makes you safer. If you spread out in space, it's actually very hard to hit you. So it seems like you get a defense-dominant situation if you spread out sufficiently far. But if you're in Earth orbit, everything is close and the lasers and missiles and the debris are a terrible danger and everything is moving very fast. So my general conclusion has been that war looks unlikely on some size scales, but not on others. It might be that as you move out into space, it becomes at first much harder But then you learn how to move better over interstellar distances, which means that each solar system is actually easily accessible. And the solar system is hard to have several parties inside that fight each other. Once you reach the galactic scale, it might again take so much time to set up a conflict. But again, it might vary. It's very unclear and it actually depends partially on physics. On the larger scales, the universe looks very defense dominant simply because everything is moving slowly apart from each other. So you can't even send light signals telling uh, the the other parts of your civilization, we declared war on the Zorgons. (laughs) So it might be that the universe at the very larger scale is very peaceful. Even doomsday weapon like false vacuum decay is only a local problem. It cannot actually destroy everything simply because everything is expanding apart. But there is a good question. Why do entities go to war? Yeah. If complex life or complex organisms uh, spread through the universe, do you think they'll mostly be biological like us or mostly machines of of, of some type? To, to me, it seems like it has to be machines because machines are just so much more flexible in the environments that they can occupy and the kind of energy sources that, that they can use rel- relative to anything biological and like any, anything that we could plausibly make using, using our current biological I don't know, style. I think it's true that technology, by its definition, you can change the basis for it to fit whatever environment you want. So if you need something that works in a high temperature environment, you start using ceramics and diamond. But you can also probably build robots out of ice on the outer planets in the solar system. Indeed, you can put dopants into ice to make it electrically conductive. People have demonstrated a fairly primitive electrical motor that could probably be built out of ice and a few pieces of metal. So you could imagine adapting technology to very different environments. And my feeling is that while humans and life might very well go out and settle the solar system, traveling over interstellar distances generally doesn't seem to be very good for our kind of life. If you want to get there fast, you need a rather small spacecraft that can be accelerated to enormous velocity and handle a lot of radiation. Not good for life. This is where you want to send your nanomachines. Uh, You can imagine slightly bigger things using solar cells, but again, not very good for getting people over. Uh, You could imagine a generation ship, but they're super unwieldy and still require horrifyingly big uh, engines. You might have island hopping between 
Comet Nuclei in the Oort Cloud. Uh, you could actually use local resources there to build space habitats that are self-sustaining, use fusion in, from deuterium in the ice, and you could imagine a very slow diffusion across the Milky Way that way of biological humans. But that's a very slow thing. If anybody invents uh, robots uh, and sends them up at a relativistic speed, these island-hopping humans in the comet cloud will always find the robots taking over all the solar systems they arrive in. Yeah, I, I've, I've said this before. I'd, uh, maybe that maybe the the best response I've gotten is that well, couldn't you send com- very complex machines very quickly to, to other star systems, and then they would they would then unpackage themselves and start replicating, and they could redesign a very complex civilization over there. And then at some point, they could use kind of instructions that they've brought with them on, on how to reconstitute human beings if they had a sufficiently advanced level of technology. That you know maybe you just sent over you know a few a few embryos or something uh, for them you know in, in and then you kept it in perfectly cold storage. And then at some point, they can actually like rebirth <laughs> humans over there, and and humans never really had to actually travel there except in the form of uh, of a few cells. Uh, does that make sense? It makes total sense. I think that's the most likely way we get biological humans in our solar systems. And it also raises this interesting question, what is the crucial technology here? And it turns out that, well, it's not just that you need this artificial womb uh, to allow the humans to develop, but also the nanobot. Uh, a robot uh, that can actually act as a good parent, uh, so you get humans growing up. This is non-trivial, but if you have good enough general intelligence, it seems doable. Quite often people think about settling space uh, that, oh, we need to to use these artificial wombs, but they are not doing most of the work. It's the nanobots that really matter. Why is that? What are the nanobots doing? I don't get it. Uh, Well, uh, once you have a newborn infant they still need somebody to care for it. Uh, They need somebody to uh, talk to it, uh, to to actually show it, uh, to grow up as a person. But but why why do they have to be nanobots? Well, nanobots, sorry, not not nanobots, nanobots. Oh, nanobots. Yes, the nannies. The nanobots, they might be doing the kind of low-level stuff, but it's the nannies that you really care about. Yeah, yeah, okay. On the offense-defense balance, I think I think I've read a thing from Gwen some years back where he was uh, supposing that possibly there could be an an offense uh, like uh, that offense could uh, be stronger than defense in uh, in wars between different uh, systems or wars wars across space because from one location you could uh, you know plan your war and then like fling some object incredibly quickly at a planet or you know at at beings that are somewhere like around around a different star or just I guess be- beings anywhere and then if you fling it fast enough then they don't have very much time to react and, and wouldn't be likely to see this thing coming and of course a relatively small asteroid that hits Earth would just be potentially absolutely devastating and and, and destroy almost all complex uh, complex life on it. Yeah, well, what do you make of this possibility that there could be kind of a, a, a pro-offense bias uh, in, in, in wars in space? Yeah, that worry has shown up in a number of uh, papers uh, and indeed even been used by some authors to say, oh, that's why we must not go to space because once we spread out, we get this security dilemma and since uh, there is a strong offense balance, we're all going to be shooting at each other and this is horrible. So that's why we must keep on the same planet forever. I don't think that is valid. The, those relativistic asteroids they could be very devastating. They're very hard to see coming, of course, because uh, they're moving so fast. But you need to aim them at something that where they do damage. So if you're sitting on a planet, you're very vulnerable because it's very predictable where that planet is going to be when the asteroid uh, comes into the solar system. 
If you're in a space habitat orbiting the planet, it's already slightly tricky because you sometimes do station keeping and you might be moving around. So if you're a hundred meters away from where you were supposed to be, the asteroid might actually totally miss you. And if you're in a spacecraft that can maneuver freely, you're even more impossible to hit because space is very big. So I did some calculations in the book for using Dyson spheres as weapons. After all, you get the total energy output of a star and you can imagine putting phased array lasers on the surface of a Dyson sphere to get essentially the ultimate magnifying glass like attacking a poor ant. And you can literally boil off planets at many light years away. This is devastating. But the people on the spacecraft kind of navigating around randomly, you can't see them because you're light years away. You, even if you have a good telescope on your Dyson sphere, you're going to only see where they were in the, in the, literally several years ago. So you have no clue where to aim your giant laser. And for it to be really devastating, it needs to be fairly narrow. If you just shine your general starlight at the entire solar system, you're just going to say, oh, that's a beautiful bright star in the sky. That's not doing any damage. So one of the interesting things I found while writing the book is that the vast distances in space actually seem to do work. They actually make the universe much safer. But you need to be mobile. Just sitting in the same spot means that you're fairly vulnerable. And if somebody has inside information, uh, maybe can direct something like a missile that is actually uh, targeting you, you might still be in trouble. Yeah. So there is this deep question, what's the ultimate missile? And I haven't figured out that one out yet, but uh, still certainly a lot more uh, things one can estimate. I do think we can actually get a physics of the limits of war. There seem to be trade-offs, for example, between information and the amount of de- uh, destructive energy you need to use. If I know exactly where you are and what you think and what you believe in, I can send you a nice letter and convince you to be on my side. If I know a little bit less, okay, I can at least fire a laser exactly at your heart. If I know a bit less, well, okay, let's fire off a machine gun in the general direction. If I know even less, okay, I need to blow up your general vicinity. I need to use more and more energy in a very undirected manner to harm you. While if I have a lot of information, I can do much more. So this is also why I'm less worried about big bangs and explosions and more about information weapons, computer viruses, very clever memes. They might actually be the most dangerous weapons of future warfare. Okay, so you've got this issue that if, if you're on a planet or something that's extremely big and hard to maneuver uh, and, and, and very predictable, then potentially you could get an offense uh, bias. Although I suppose we could imagine other defenses. Like uh, maybe, you know, the thing's not actually going to be traveling at the speed of light, presumably. So maybe you could have sensors that would detect it. And, and like, you know, if you can see something early enough, then very minor changes to its trajectory, like firing a laser at it in order to divert it could be a reasonable defense. But I, I guess a, a general theme running through a lot of your work is that uh, we think about Planets, surface of planets as the as the habitable place. But in actual fact, I suppose most life is probably going to be machines uh, in, in future. And machines can exist just as well or maybe even better uh, out around asteroids or you know, not inside this very uh, intense gravity well uh, around, around a planet. Like the surface of a planet is actually just a very small amount of the surface area that is available across space. I, I used to play this computer game called Stellaris and there was a civilization that uh, were called void dwellers that, that lived in space. And they were, they were real weirdos uh, that had very unusual technology because they... 
for, like they, I think they couldn't go onto planets because their, their bones were too weak. But yes, I mean, void, void dwellers probably is the most likely future for where most life is uh, is going to going to end up because just in terms of accessing resources and matter, uh, it's easier to do it uh, if you deconstruct a planet rather than merely live on the on, on the surface of it. Plus, there's just like way more surface area on asteroids than there is surface area on on planets. And then if you're on a small thing, then you can just change your trajectory at any point in time, uh, and then you're then you're extremely hard to target. Indeed, impossible probably to target from from sufficiently far away. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's the kind of classic idea in space settlement. Gerald O'Neill famously said, is the surface of a planet the right place to have an industrial civilization? And of course, it's pretty obvious what he thought the answer was. He, his vision was, of course, these big, nice, rotating space habitats. And they are interesting because you could argue that's a form of ecosystem, a form of life. It's a weird technological ecosystem. And indeed, uh, in some of the writings of space enthusiasts, it's been suggested that this is the next stage of life, literally macro life, which is a kind of symbiosis between a technological system cradling this internal ecosystem that contains humans and uh, the plants and other things. But it also acts as an organism. It takes in the energy in the form of sunlight or nuclear power, and it grabs matter in the form of asteroids, and then turn repairs itself using that and creates copies of itself. Now, you can imagine more technological versions of that without the squishy biological part, but I just generally would put it all under the heading of life. It's something that can replicate itself. It's something that can evolve, either through random evolution or just des- deliberate design or any other form. And I think it's also likely to try various niches. We're kind of used to the inner solar system where a lot of uh, volatiles are around the big planets, but on the lighter places like the moon and uh, partially Mars, they have disappeared. So it's kind of a dry place. Uh, Hard to believe uh, given that we're on Earth, but generally it's fairly dry and there is a lot of energy. And you also can get easy access to metals. Go outside the asteroid belt and, well, you're getting things wetter. There is more and more ice, but it's hard to get those metals because they're mostly buried in the cores of uh, the big uh, giant planets. On the other hand, you can get lots of volatiles. So you can build things out of ice and other materials. When you go to the really far reaches like Pluto and the Kuiper belt, again, Lots of ice and only a few percent of dust that you can then extract carbon and metals from. So you get different styles. You could imagine different ecosystems and also using the different energy densities. If you're close to the sun, you get a lot of energy very easily, but it's also hard to keep yourself cool. You might also want to use high temperature materials. If you're out of the Kuiper belt, the energy flow might be fairly weak. But on the other hand, very little gravity, very little stuff. You have a lot of ice. Maybe you can be a filigree structure of ice moving very slowly. And these are the things we can envision right now. Uh, They're going to look pretty silly eventually once we get out there. Yeah. If far greater than human machine intelligence just turned out to be physically impossible for some reason, you know, what fraction of all value that we might get in one of these big features would be lost relative to a universe in which it, uh, it that, that actually was possible. So somewhat surprising, I don't think it's necessarily losing out on that much value uh, unless the real value resides in doing super smart things. Maybe it is that you need to search for these vast spaces of philosophy and science to find the true values and what you truly should do. And if there is no super intelligence, we might be just fumbling around and never finding what we actually ought to do with the universe. But the kind of automation you need to actually have a big impact on the universe, it's not that dramatic. 
I can imagine that you want to have automation that allow you to do engineering and mining and uh, the, the production in space. You want to have self-replicating robots that you can pick apart the asteroids. And then you can use that to set up Dyson spheres. You can already do a lot of megascale engineering just using a little bit more technology. These robots, they don't need to be even human intelligence, I think. You just need them to be like many animals. After all, we have a lot of animals in the world that are building various complex structures and doing a decent job without being particularly interesting conversationalists. So I don't think superintelligence is necessary to get a lot of value. Of course, that assumes that value resides in something we do recognize as value. There might also be these weird things that we might then want to explore, biological modification. Whatever it is limiting superintelligence, we might want to find ways around that. Maybe it's not possible to have artificial superintelligence, but maybe biological superintelligence is possible. I've certainly heard that view. I think it's crazy. But in this thought experiment, maybe it's not crazy and might be worth pursuing. What do you think is the biggest practical or kind of engineering impediment that a complex life, including machine intelligence, might face trying to spread across the galaxy and potentially even even between galaxies. So if you want to go fast, I'm always worried about dust grains. Uh, So any relativistic probe moving close to the speed of light, uh, running into a dust grain, well, that dust grain will explode like a small nuclear explosive. And that's not going to be particularly fun for the spacecraft unless you have a lot of shielding. So the faster you go, the more problems you have from these dust grains, not to mention that the interstellar gas is actually acting as a proton beam. If you're moving past this hydrogen, it's almost like you're getting bombarded by that. So that might put a kind of speed limit. If there is a lot of gravel out there, you might not be able to go that far before running into something. So you might need to go slower and or have more shielding, or you need to use a lot of redundancy. It actually sets a kind of distance limit. It's kind of amazing when you look at the Milky Way and, uh, at night. If you've got a really clear sky, you see these dark bands, and that's dust clouds. And between you and the galactic center, there's always a dust particle. Uh, there is enough to actually hide all the light going through. Most of that dust is so fine that it's not much of a problem for us, well-built space probe. But there might be more gravel hiding there. And we actually don't know how much there is because it's hard to observe. We can observe the fine dust because it's got such a big surface area. But the bigger dust grains are very tricky. There is a lot of assumptions among astronomers about them, but we simply don't know. Okay, so so the trade-off here is if you go really fast, then whenever you hit a dust particle, it's more explosive. Uh, And so... You can have, I guess, a very small thing that goes very fast and you hope it doesn't hit dust because it's got such a small surface area. Or I suppose you can make many different ships and then hope that one of them will get through because by chance it, it won't hit a, hit a dust particle. Or you could go slower. Uh, so you can have a bigger thing that goes slower uh, and then it's more likely to hit dust particles, but it's not so explosive when it, when it, when it, when it hits them. I suppose the ultimate like, constraint across these things is determined by the hardness of the shield in front of you, right? Where if you could come up with an extraordinary material that was barely damaged or barely deformed by these collisions with dust even at near the speed of light, then you could go super fast and you could even have a very big thing going, going very fast. But that would require some material science that's <laughs> better than what we have now. Yeah, and I think we can even put some constraints on whether it's ever possible. Because this is a typical move I do in the book. We know the strength of molecular bonds. We know roughly how strongly atoms can be linked to each other. So if you want a very powerful shield, and here comes something with a lot of energy, you can kind of calculate, okay, how much can the bonds withstand? 
And uh, it turns out beyond a certain velocity, you're not going to win because you get uh-huh. so much more energy uh, in that impinging dust particle, which is not going to exactly behave even like an object hitting uh, armor, but it's more like, almost like uh, somebody sent a particle beam at it. It's a small nuclear explosion. Huh. So going slow, I think, is another promising thing. But that, of course, requires, again, a non-human approach. Uh, maybe you have cryonically frozen people, but again, if you go really slow, there is a lot of radiation, etc. And you probably, again, want those robots to do it. But now you need a system that can still work well after a very long time in space. And I think that is an interesting challenge in engineering. How do we make ultra-reliable systems? Right now, Reliability is not something we optimize in most situations because it's cheaper to buy new stuff. And I think this is going to be true for a long time. We can probably recycle our objects much more readily on Earth than we actually want to have something ultra-reliable. But if you can't recycle it, or rather you need to recycle yourself because you're a spacecraft out in the interstellar space, now you need things that don't go wrong very often, or can repair themselves really well and very reliably. And this is a fascinating engineering challenge. Yeah. What's the strongest possible bond that you can get? Uh, Is this like a covalent bond or is it some kind of metal? Is it what? Yeah. What's what's the limiting factor? So the strongest chemical bond you can get is between carbon and oxygen in carbon monoxide. So that's kind of pointless because it doesn't form anything else. But then we got the diamond uh, structure, which is quite close to the limit. There are ways of cheating. So there is something called Landau atoms, and that happens probably on the surface of neutron stars when you have very extreme magnetic fields. They make the electron orbitals around the atom turn into cylinders, and they can overlap in really weird ways. So there have been some papers arguing that neutron stars actually have little whiskers of iron atoms lining up and forming these super strong uh, chains. There is other papers arguing that this doesn't happen because of complicated reasons. There might be a few tricks like this. I don't think it's great for armor, but it might be great for <laughs> yeah, other weird engineering. I see, yeah. Yeah, it seems hard to maintain that on the surface. Okay, so, so we actually have a decent idea of what the what the toughest materials that are physically possible, uh, like excluding exotic materials, so what, what those look like. Well, that's also a good question. What counts as an exotic material? I would say that mo- molecular matter, I think we understand fairly well. We're still getting su- surprises like the superconductor. There is a lot of magic going on when once you start organizing matter in the right way, as microchips and living beings demonstrate. But when you get to things like quark matter and uh, neutron star matter, the possibilities look bigger, but they're also very hard to maintain. None of them look like they're yeah. stable at zero pressure, which I think is a quite big requirement for building anything uh, useful in space. What do you think are the chances that we're living in a simulation and and why? I, I mean, that, that It's relevant here because if we're living in a simulation, then probably these things aren't going to happen because uh, things might be reset or uh, or that people might come in and tell us that we're living in a simulation before any of this gets, gets around to happening. So I don't think uh, thinking we live in a simulation is useful from a decision-relevant perspective uh, because uh, if we are in a simulation, uh, what should we do differently? If we knew that we were in simulation but had no information about the world that was outside or what the purpose of a simulation would be, you still don't get any decision-relevant information. If you know that the purpose of a simulation is to simulate this or that, then you might say, "Mm, I'm going to kind of uh, sweeten up my simulators and uh, do things that they like. Uh, You actually have something you might do differently. But as long as we don't have any such information... 
it doesn't tell us anything. The main thing might be, of course, yes, if we think we're simulated, we should expect a smaller future. But again, that assumes, for example, that computational resources in the outside universe are really limited. Maybe the outside universe is so big that you can simulate a super civilization covering our universe, and it's just a screensaver in that universe. So you have to make assumptions to get any decision out of a simulation argument. And this, in my opinion, means that mm, it's not actually telling you very much. Um, the interesting part is, of course, if we start making simulations or even more interesting, encounter aliens that made simulations, we might then have an increased likelihood of thinking that we are in a simulation, either our own or maybe the aliens bootleg simulation of humanity uh, to figure us out uh, diplomatically. It can get very weird, but generally, I don't think you get much out of a simulation argument. It's also worth noting that Nick Bostrom's simulation argument has three branches. It says that one of out of these three awkward things must be true. Either we're in a simulation, or we have much bigger existential risk, or post-human super-civilizations never really assimilate the past. These other two legs are not as popular as, oh, we're living in a simulation. But I think very important, because if you buy the simulation argument, you should be more worried about existential risk. And you should also perhaps be a bit more concerned about, hmm, maybe future civilizations are very ethical about how we simulate the past or simulate uh, conscious minds. And that might be interesting to inquire into uh, too. I guess one, one reason that people raise the simulation idea is that for in the context of talking about uh, you know uh, complex life continuing for trillions of years and there being these enormous numbers of minds over all of this time, we seem to be living at this really surprising point in history of the universe. Because if life spreads through the universe and the overwhelming majority of beings will live in this totally different world, very far, well, not necessarily that far in the future, but in a world where complex life is spread across most of the accessible universe. And so our position will seem shockingly strange and 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 really uh, early. So yeah, what, what's your favorite explanation for how it is that we find ourselves in this unusual and I guess in some sense arguably kind of privileged position? Did, have we just gotten super lucky or what's going on? Yeah, I think this is a very important and tricky question. It's also worth noticing that the Stelliferous era where there are stars is going to last maybe 10 to 100 trillion years. And we are in the first uh, 13 billion years. That's again, what's going on here? Why are we really early? There, I think you can make an argument that most of the biosphere years you could imagine in the future are going to be around little red dwarf stars that might not be as habitable as we currently think they could be. So maybe actually we're close to peak habitability for organic life in the universe and we shouldn't be too surprised about that. But still, if technological civilization spreads, then of course those red dwarf stars are going to be total good real estate. And... Um, you could argue that uh, maybe this is evidence that actually nobody's going to spread across the universe. Actually, this is it. Uh, this early part of a Stelliferous series where intelligence shows up and maybe you can't spread for some weird reason across the universe. But another interesting answer, which I'm rather fond of, is Robin Hanson's grabby aliens idea. So... I'm particularly fond of it because I almost had the idea, but didn't. <laughs> I had all the pieces. I have a chapter in the book where I'm talking about alien intelligence, various explanations, expansion patterns, and all of that. I have all the pieces laid out in front of me. But Robin actually was the one putting it together and said, wait a minute, if civilizations start spreading out, presumably in the areas they have spread, new intelligent species don't arise. It's just going to be whoever gone there and whatever they do. We are not in one of those zones. 
Now, if you look at the history of the universe, you have like this kind of phase transition of a, a universe with no uh, intelligent life spreading, a relatively short period where there is a fair bit of intelligent life in transit, expanding out, and then eventually they meet each other and all parts of space are now settled. And that means that we are in this kind of weird position that we're quite close to that limit. And if there are many hard evolutionary transitions and, uh, to get to intelligence, you should expect intelligence to show up as late as possible in the history of a biosphere. And I have some papers to that effect, so I'm totally in agreement with this. In that case, we should expect to be relatively close to this transition. This transition is still probably billions of years long, so we're talking astronomical timescales. But the grabby aliens argument, I like it because it both explains why we haven't seen any aliens. Because the aliens that are quiet, they're hard to see. They're not expanding. They're just sitting there enjoying life. The expansive ones, well, we haven't met with them yet because we just started expanding about this time. We might start noticing them in a billion years or so, where we might also be expanding. And this also explains why we are around now. It still has this big problem. Why aren't we part of some post-human super-civilization after we contacted the grabby aliens in a few billion years? And maybe the answer is, well, maybe we all form a one big group intellect and the, uh, out of the trillion human beings that ever existed, the group intellect uh, that exists forever after that time is just one of us. So the probability is one in a trillion of being the group intellect. So we found ourselves being among the more normal, boring humans before contact. That might be an explanation, although I'm not convinced by it. A more deep answer is probably, yeah, I'm not certain anthropics always is a reliable guide here. Um, many of these anthropic arguments are great starting points, but as soon as you get a piece of evidence, that weighs much more strongly than this nice reasoning. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll stick up a link to a YouTube explainer video about the, the, the grabby aliens idea. It's basically this, this idea that at some point the universe does get taken over by aliens expanding or, you know, some sort of life expanding and taking over matter uh, very quickly uh, for, for various different reasons. And kind of we have to come before that because otherwise uh, all of this space would have already been would, would have already been taken over. I think it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's been a little while since I watched the video. But in, in terms of explaining, like, why don't we live in the post-Grabby era inside the Grabby uh, alien civilization? And you're saying, well, one explanation might be that there's kind of only a handful of extremely big minds in that scenario. And so, in fact, there's like more beings like us that are very small than just this handful of extremely big <laughs> minds that are. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so it, in fact, it's not so shocking that most beings like end up being more like us. But in order to avoid that shocking conclusion, now we end up with another shocking conclusion that the future is full of very big minds. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose you were talking about anthropics, which is this question of what you can learn from your existence. It's a little bit hard to explain exactly what it is. Yeah, so, so the simplest form of anthropics is just to observe a selection bias. And uh, for example, most uh, people doing uh, surveys are academics, because academics tend to do surveys much more often than normal people, which means that you get this weird bias that whoever is making the survey is going to be um, an academic quite often. Uh, it turns out that on average, uh, your friends have more friends than you. It's another fun thing because we have a skewed distribution of the number of friends we have. And we know what usually we know one or two people who are these extreme uh, networkers. And they are more friends than we do because we're usually not extreme networkers. So these biases, of course, are well, well known and a problem when you do science. 
But we're not too weird. The, the thing that gets weird is, of course, when your existence might be subject to an observer selection bias. So I have one paper about anthropic shadows where we just point out that if there is a big disaster, like a giant asteroid hitting Earth, it's very unlikely that an intelligent species evolves just after that because the ecosystems are in disarray. There is not much life in the biosphere, etc. Especially if it's a total disaster and all life gets wiped out. So if you find yourself to be an intelligent observer, you can't have, have a giant meteor impact in your recent past. You actually get this weird magical seeming effect that you will find that your planet, even if it's a dangerous universe, have been missed by asteroids recently. And that's not because your existence has this magic asteroid deflecting power. It's just that those rare lucky planets that weren't hit by asteroids and have observers, yeah, they were random lucky places and the observers there get a totally wrong perspective of the world. So... It takes a lot of subtlety to think about well about these things. And I think most of the time we're slipping up, even academically, when doing it. So I don't think it's a good thing to build too much on anthropic thinking. It feels like it should give us a lot of stuff. But quite often it's so rickety that mm, you should get any piece of evidence other than that. Yeah. A listener wrote in with this question for you. Um, there are surprisingly credible sources claiming that the US government knows that there are aliens visiting Earth. Uh, and more generally, the idea of UAP, uh, I think that's what unidentified aerial phenomenon, uh, that's, that's entered the mainstream. Um, Congress has actually been holding hearings about this, which would have seemed a bit crazy 10 years ago. Uh, have you looked into any of this? And, and what do you think of the chances that life from other solar systems might have visited Earth? I looked a little bit into it, and I'm not particularly convinced. So UAPs, why are we seeing these blurry, weird things? Well, there could be a lot of different reasons for that. And people immediately latch on to one possible experiment. It's aliens. Why aren't they talking about angels? Or superintelling <laughs> squid from the bottom of the ocean? There is a very long list of possible explanations, including the super boring, yeah, there are optical effects in the complex lens systems or on the modern warplanes. In some cases, footage of UAPs have turned out to have very weird natural explanations. Like in one case, it was a Batman uh, logo-shaped balloon up among the clouds. Okay. <laughs> What's the probability of even seeing that from a plane? That's kind of low. There is a lot of strange random stuff. So when you see something strange, you need to update your beliefs. And if you try to be a good Bayesian about it, you need to check, okay, what hypothesis is this compatible with? So if I see a blurry spot of light moving very fast, it both fits with aliens uh, having a super advanced spacecraft, but it also fits quite well with uh, some weird problem with my optics, as well as a long list of uh, the other weird possibilities, ranging from the squid over to uh, that I'm actually hallucinating. Yeah. Now, if I see a little green man on my lawn uh, telling me, take me to your leader, <laughs> suddenly a lot of those other explanations go away. Not all of them. Uh, the probability of me going crazy is still embarrassingly high. So I should probably ask my friends, do you see that little green guy too? Yeah. And if they all agree, then the, the probability of all us going crazy simultaneously is low. There is still some possibility for a prank or, or something. Yeah, right. But you need rather specific evidence. Seeing weird things moving around doesn't tell us very much. And I think, unfortunately, we latch on to this explanation. The fact that there are hearings and there are surprisingly credible sources saying this, I'm, yeah, I think this credible sources are an interesting thing to check 
how likely is it that they know what we're talking about? Because there have been a lot of very crazy stuff going on in the US intelligence and military establishment too, driven by people with various bees in their bonnets about particular and their threats. Um, so I'm not terribly convinced by this. The, the really interesting issue is, of course, it's still not implausible that advanced civilizations exist. And uh, if they wanted to hide, could they hide from us? And uh, I think if you're an advanced nano-civilization and have your act together, you could hide really well. So in that case, why would we be seeing blurry things moving around? On the other hand, you could also imagine, well, you maybe had an advanced civilization, but they're teenagers taking the saucer out for a spin, and they're trying to keep a non-interference <laughs> uh, activity going, but there are these people messing around, which would, of course, also explain a lot of the stupidities with many of these uh, UAP observations. But I don't think that sounds super plausible, actually. I think it's a bit more binary than that. Yeah. Still, I think it's worth recognizing that the world is strange and full of a lot of unlikely and strange things. Uh, the bigger the, our world gets, the more things just out of sheer randomness that is just simply unbelievable uh, will just keep on increasing. So it's going to be hard to filter all of this. Yeah. I mean, I'd assume that it was it had to be, you know, the instruments malfunctioning or people having optical illusions or, or hallucinations or or whatever. I, I mean, that, that just seemed like the obvious answer. The thing that maybe do a double take is I think people claiming that, you know, you'd have multiple pilots in different planes seeing the same thing or, you know, multiple different independent instruments would all be showing the same, like an object moving at some insane speed. And then, then you're like, wow, that, that it's strange. It calls for it calls for some investigation or or, yeah. or or some explanation more than just one person seeing something, which is totally not credible. Yeah, uh, and uh, that multiple witness thing is important. Uh, it gets back to Hume's old discussion about should we believe in miracles? And he he again essentially made the same argument I did, but then noted that if you have a lot of credible witnesses that all see this, and especially if some of the witnesses don't even want to believe this, but they still are forced to conclude that yeah, I saw this weird thing. Mm, now we have a reason to update. Yeah. The funny thing is, it's not as if the idea of there being aliens uh, that have come to the solar system or to the Earth, that that like a priori is such a strange thing. That what is strange is that we haven't seen massive signs of that. And so all that all we would see is this tiny sign of it. If, if there was tons of aliens around, we'd be like, well, I guess obviously it's just aliens. That's like, a <laughs> uh, why, why would we think that they wouldn't be? There's life all over the place. But why would it be this like tiny amount where we just occasionally see these craft? Mm. Uh, that's that's the thing where it's like so hard to come up with a great explanation for why that would be the, that would be the situation. Yeah, uh, I think it's also worth noticing that there are weird things out there that we're sometimes missing. Uh, one, one of my favorite examples are the sprites and phantoms above thunderstorms. So what happens when you have big thunderstrikes is that you actually get plasma clouds going up into the ionosphere, uh, with, forming various weird uh, red patterns. And they have been observed for a long time by airline pilots and ignored. Because it was bad for your career if you reported weird stuff showing up on top of the lightning storms, because that was a sign that you were hallucinating and now your license could disappear. So everybody more or less agreed in the aerospace world to not see those things until eventually astronomers, uh, astronauts and amateur and, uh, photographers started getting credible uh, photos of them. And no now they're kind of a mainstay. And now they're established that, yeah, they're a real thing. We uh, can do science on them. I found it interesting that here we had this the code of silence about something people were obviously seeing and must even tell each other that, yeah, you're not seeing that thing. 
for a long time. I have a feeling that there are pr- plenty of other stuff like that in the world that we're just missing as a civilization. Alyssa wrote in with a with another question that's a that's a bit related to the book. Oh, it's a question of uh, do civilizations eventually decay and become more likely over time to to break apart? Yeah, I, I saw that you published a book chapter titled "The Lifespan of Civilizations: Do Societies Age or Is Collapse Just Bad Luck?" Uh, but I couldn't get the book. What, what's the answer? Do societies get more likely to collapse the the, the longer they the longer they last for? I don't think so. Uh, that, and that is actually the point of that chapter, which is a spin-off from my big book. Because when I was going through the calculations of how to move galaxies and do all of this stuff, I realized that mm, maybe the big limitation here is not physics, but society. If you need uh, to have a project team that keeps the move of a galaxy going for a billion years, how likely is that to last? I mean, most organizations don't last very long in the present. And indeed, if civilizations inexorably collapse after a while because they age and become decadent, then maybe that is the fundamental limitation of how grand futures we could possibly have. So Mm. I started reading macro history and realized macro historians make very compelling stories about why civilizations rise and fall and why history has a certain shape. But they're all different. And they're all kind of contradictory. So I became a bit nervous about trusting any of them. So then I just took a lot of data and started doing curve fitting to try to see what are the survival curves. And the thing I found was the best fit I could find for civilizations was exponential decay. There is a kind of time constant for how likely a civilization is going to be around for. There is a kind of half half life for civilizations. But the risk of a civilization collapsing doesn't seem to increase with time, which is the important part. If there was some kind of decadence building up or maybe some environmental uh, depth or something else, then you should expect uh, that over time it became more likely that they crashed. Or you could have that there may be some childhood disease of civilizations that uh, when they first show up, they have a high likelihood of crashing. We don't see that. That might, of course, partially be that we have a selection bias, that we don't think about the stuff that crashed immediately as a civilization. But this seems to apply also to other forms of politics, like kingdoms in Europe and, uh, and the various uh, political states. In the case of corporations, again, it's kind of well known that they also have a fairly constant hazard rate, except for the startup phase where they're very vulnerable. It's fairly constant, except for the very, very oldest corporations in the world that tend to be very stable because we're typically a Japanese inn at a hot spring or some brewery <laughs> and Something exploits that resource that people always will want to have. So using this data, my conclusion seems to be that mm, civilizations probably collapse because of bad luck rather than there is something bad building up. Now, that is still an interesting open question. Why do, do we have this bad luck? Is it just that it's very unlikely events that conspire to bring things down? Or is it that there is something intrinsic? And even worse, of course, Bad luck is rather hard to defend against. You can imagine a Dyson sphere covered uh, with rabbit's foots and uh, the horseshoes hoping to ward <laughs> off bad luck, but that's unlikely to work. Probably the best way of warding off bad luck is kind of having multiple copies, uh, having backup civilizations. And if one crashes, the other ones shake their heads, you know, pick up the pieces and resettle that part of the space. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a super interesting question because I guess we're used to the analogy with humans where over time we get more and more likely to die because our bodies are not sufficiently good at repairing and regenerating themselves. So just the damage, well, I think over time the repair mechanisms break and then the damage starts to accumulate at an ever increasing rate. And so you become like quite likely to uh, to, to die of old age between, you know, 70 uh, and, uh, and, and 100. Uh, yeah. And we, we like making that analogy. A lot of people talk about the flourishing of civilization or young civilization or old civilization. And we quite often anthropomorphize societies and civilization way more than is good. Rousseau was talking about diseases of civilization and he was literally thinking that some bad things in society were like a literal disease in the body of a civilization. And once you start thinking like that, of course, aging seems to be reasonable. But it's worth noting that a lot of multicellular life doesn't age. Yeah, right, right. I, I mean, I think a lot of people have this natural intuition that, you know, societies of a time, they get gunked up with like rubbish processes. And uh, I don't know, there's a bit of a morality aspect to this that it's like, oh, you know, they become too conservative and they can't change with the with the times. And I mean, you definitely hear this about companies as well, the kind of old companies, the management can't keep up. And so things are more likely to, to crash. But uh, it sounds like in actual fact, the regenerative processes are roughly balanced with the degenerative ones. And, and in fact, they don't really die at a, at a particularly, you know, things don't, they don't age like humans and they're not particularly likely to die after some specified period of time. Uh, yeah. Uh, and there is still interesting questions here to answer. Like, it seems like rules would grow over time. Uh, most of us complain about our organization being rather sclerotic. Uh, I'm at Oxford, 800 years of history, and we have a rule book that is uh, literally 10 centimeters thick. Um, <laughs> but then again, after 800 years, why is it just 10 centimeters? Why shouldn't it be one meter thick? And... Uh, the answer is probably that you reach a steady state. There was actually a study looking at Stanford University's regulations about a century of growth of rules. And eventually what happens is that you reach this steady state where you're adding some new rules, but you're also compressing old rules. Some have become irrelevant, but you still get this big mess. Uh, and the most people complain about it. We have complaints from the Middle Ages about from kings that the laws are incomprehensible and not written in plain English. Can't, can't you do it in a sensible way? And the answer is, well, didn't help that the king didn't like it. The laws just kept on being messy. But there are these weird balancing factors. And other systems might be really good at regenerating, like cities. They seem to be almost better at regenerating themselves than companies. Indeed, there is a surprising lack of cities that have died. There are ghost towns and a few abandoned cities. But a lot of cities are still going. Jericho, which is arguably the oldest existing one, it's kind of started not very far after the Ice Age, and it's still full of people. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a super interesting. I haven't really thought about that. That I mean, I mean, I guess we know all cities that have gone into decline, but I guess the, the benefits of agglomerating people in a given location, and sometimes I suppose the, the, the benefits of some particular locations where people have chosen to put cities are so great as to offset or like apparently are sufficiently great to offset some of these degenerative processes that might eventually cause people to to leave because things have broken somehow. Mm. Because I mean, yeah, just like London's been, London's been here for a very, very, very long time uh, where, where, where I am. And, and London is interesting because, yes, it started out as a small village uh, that Roman conquered and turned into Londinium. And then it has its ups and downs and disasters. But of course, the more trade you have there, the more reason there is to keep on uh, going there. Uh, you get more governance. Okay, another reason to uh, show up there. And it becomes self-maintaining. If there, it burns down, well, you still want to rebuild it because a lot of people like that place. And then it becomes more and more ingrained. 
And sometimes you get these absurd situations where people really struggling to keep something that we perhaps should pull the plug on, mm. but you still, for cultural reasons, find too valuable. Think about Venice. It's absurd. There was a good reason to build a city in a lagoon uh, at the end of the Roman Empire because you didn't get invaded. But it, uh, that kind of lost its power by the time of Napoleon. But now it's threatened by climate change and the sinking and all the other uh, things. Yet we agree that it's so awesome that we want to keep it going even at a fairly big cost because, yeah, losing Venice would be a tragedy. So even the idea of a city might keep it afloat. Yeah. The thing I, I was reaching for the term network effects, the network effects of a city and the positive feedback loop that keeps people going where other people are is quite powerful. And it can be, can be enough to offset quite strong reasons why people might want to relocate a city, even if it was if only they could kind of coordinate to do it. What's a crazy piece of cosmological engineering that is kind of ordering stars or planets or galaxies uh, that you think has a real shot of happening, which I guess in this context means like more than a one in a billion chance? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think there is plenty of cool cosmological engineering. One thing I'm interested in is, of course, uh, setting up really complex uh, gravitational collapses, getting uh, actually a lot of stars collapse to make a black hole to spec that has a lot of angular momentum. So you might uh, want to, for example, briefly have a torus-shaped black hole. The reason for that is that if you do it just right, maybe, just maybe you can get a wormhole. Although this is very problematic because there's some theory, the topology censorship theory, that actually prevents black holes to be ring-shaped long enough for anybody to fly through them. But there are probably other forms of cosmological engineering that are worth doing. Uh, I do think uh, managing galactic mergers uh, is a good idea. Basically, you want to nudge all the stars in both galaxies to uh, get together. So they collide just right. So all the stars find a partner and get uh, to be a binary system. So you keep all the genetic energy. So the Milky Way and Andromeda might be moving towards each other. And instead of just sloshing through each other and turning to chaos, it turns into this perfect little dance where all the stars are gathered together and all the enormous uh, energy, because we're talking about the genetic energy of two big galaxies, get stored for future use as a kind of gravitational engine. It would be the ultimate choreography. What sort of mechanism would you use to kind of change the trajectory of each of the different stars to to shift where they're going and how fast? So in my book, I work a lot with aluminium foil in this case. Not because it's the best and most plausible method, but this is the one we actually can calculate very easily and don't need to assume any impressive stellar engines. So the basic idea is that if I have a very thin piece of aluminium foil reflecting starlight, I can actually use that to move the star. Imagine that you put a hemisphere of aluminium foil around a star, so all its starlight was going out in one direction. That's an exceedingly woozy rocket. Uh, But it turns out that it's enough to nudge uh, stars. So over a span of a few million years, you can get two-body encounters with another star. And now they give each other a gravitational slingshot. And you have, of course, set up things so they go exactly where you want them. Hold on. So you you stick a piece of aluminium foil on one side of a star, and so it's reflecting the light that's hitting it. Why doesn't that just cause the aluminium foil to fly off really quickly into space far, far away? Yeah, exactly. Uh, You need to to do this carefully. But basically, the star is pulling on the aluminium foil and trying to, of course, make the aluminium foil fall down onto the star. And the aluminium foil is pushed away by the uh, starlight. Now, 
you can't probably use a big sheet of hemispherical aluminium foil. You actually have a lot of free-flying things. So you get something like a half of a Dyson sphere. And it's even more funny than that, because imagine along the equator. There you have aluminium foil tilted at 45 degrees. So starlight hits it and then pushes against it and goes off in one direction. And now you have that gravity essentially gets altered for the aluminium foil because the star is pulling on it, but you also get a little force there. So you need to set it up right. So it's orbiting in an orbit that actually doesn't correspond to the normal orbit we see in space where stuff is just held together by gravity. This is called a non-Keplerian orbit. And closer to the poles of this hemisphere, you also have essentially aluminium foil kept aloft by the starlight and pulled back by gravity. So it's a very funny system. It's slightly finicky, but it's kind of standard classical mechanics. It's an interesting control engineering problem to add little fins to these ones so we can do station keeping and microchips so they know where they're supposed to go. But it's not requiring any fundamentally weird physics. You probably want a much more the, the oomphy stellar engine. You could imagine having a big asteroid with big ion engines on it. And again, the asteroid, it's not orbiting the star. It wants to fall into it, but you turn on the ion engines uh, and they uh, send out beams of ions pulling in the other direction. The gravity will also make the star move in the direction of the ion engine slightly. Again, it's a very tiny effect. And again, you can make an engine that actually drags the star in a direction you want. This is a very wussy effect unless you have a very heavy engine and a lot of uh, oomph. So again, you might want a Dyson sphere to just power this whole weird contraption. It's probably even more effective if you could get stellar matter as a rocket. But now we're really getting into the realm of stuff where you're getting very wishful engineering. I've seen papers kind of talking about, well, we build an orbital ring and from that beanstalks uh, to pump up stellar matter. And when I check the calculation, I realize that... I don't believe those numbers. And I'm the guy talking about rearranging galaxies and I still not believe in those numbers. <laughs> this looks like mm, this is kind of far uh, the, outside the envelope. But the aluminium foil approach is fun. That's called a Skladov engine because that shows a minimum intervention that is just a nudge, but it's enough if you do these gravitational slingshots to really get stars up to speed. Now we're talking about change of speed for tens of kilometers per second. And then you can do a lot of interesting choreography with other stars. Binary stars are like gravitational batteries. They contain a lot of kinetic energy. And if a star flies past in one direction, it gets uh, extra energy. The binary system kind of gets closer together, more tightly bound. If you fly in the other direction, you slow down the star and the binary picks up the energy. You can also get them to do more complicated free body interactions if you really want to send them off or break up the binary or keep the interloping star in a parking orbit until some other star arrives. So it looks like if you're clever, you can actually rearrange the galaxy on a time scale of a few hundred million years this way. Yes, you need an enormous, ridiculous amount of aluminium foil and a <laughs> lot of careful planning, not to mention error correction. You need to re-nudge a lot of things as uh, things get a little bit out of whack. But it looks like physics allows this uh, weird activity, and that might be quite useful for handling gravitational mergers and making the galaxy a bit more neat so it doesn't dissolve in the far future. Glad I'm not the project manager on that one. Yeah, that, you can imagine the team meetings, especially with the, the delays in the video calls from the outer parts of the galaxy. <laughs> After the era of stars, I guess the, the stelliferous era, as it's called, it's a, 
I love the word stelliferous for some reason. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so after most of the stars have burned out and the universe is kind of getting very cold, what what options remain for extracting lots of energy to do things? So. At that point, there is still a fair bit of fusion energy you could get because there is a lot of brown dwarfs that are still hanging around. Uh, they just uh, were too light to ever turn into a star. So in theory, you could mine them uh, for hydrogen and burn that if you have a fusion reactor. Uh, but the funny thing is also in the really long run, they are also randomly occasionally bumping into each other, forming little uh, red dwarf stars. That's a very inefficient process, but over the very long time periods, it actually does happen. But I think intelligent life would not be patient enough for that. So what you probably want to do is that you burn the fusible elements either in your fusion reactor or by dripping them on top of, for example, a white dwarf star or a neutron star. This has a bit of a limit because once you added enough, the white dwarf star collapses gravitationally and turns into a supernova. So there is a slight environmental problem. The best method, in my opinion, is to use black holes. I'm very fond of black hole power. Yeah. Uh, and I am assuming that maybe in, in a few trillion years, I'm going to be dealing with uh, protesters saying no black holes in our neighborhood <laughs> and uh, don't build that power plant, Anders. But they're actually lovely. Uh, black holes have accretion disks when they suck in matter. Or rather, it's not that they suck in matter. That's kind of a picture we get from science fiction. They're just an object with gravity like anything else. But what happens when you put a lot of junk around a black hole, they form a disk and the friction between parts of the disk heats up the matter. That means it radiates away energy and gets more tightly bound and slowly spirals in. There is also some angular momentum leaking out at the sides uh, where some dust gets thrown off. The effect of this is that the potential energy of that junk, and it can be anything, burnt out stars, old cars, old space probes, planets you don't care for, etc. Um, that gets ground down and uh, the potential energy gets released and, as radiation. So now you can build a Dyson sphere, a very big one, around this whole uh, system and get all of that energy. How much of a total mass energy can you get? Well, it turns out it's uh, almost up to uh, 40% for a rapidly spinning black hole. The exact limit depends on the inner edge of accretion disk because eventually you get close enough that you essentially fall straight in without releasing any more energy and that gets trapped inside the black hole. Now, converting 40% of the mass energy of old cars and space probes uh, into energy, that is kind of astonishing. That, that is way more effective than fusion. So actually, the stars might not be the biggest energy source uh, around. We might actually be able to make the galaxies shine much more if we dump things into black holes and gather that energy. There are also other funny ways you can get energy out of black holes, something in, uh, that is called superradiant scattering. And this is, again, one of those really weird effects. I remember Toby Ord uh, showing me uh, a video. This was Kurzgesagt's video about black hole bombs. And it's totally worth watching because it's going to explain this much better than I can do. And he said, Anders, this can't be right, can it? And I just smiled and showed him the relevant pages in my book, which are, of course, much less entertaining, but <laughs> way more equations. Basically, the trick is, if you have a rapidly spinning black hole and throw matter by it in just the right way, you need to dump some of it into the black hole, but some of it will escape and it will have more energy. Uh, and that's great. You can extract a little bit of energy from the black hole. If you do this with light, you can have a light wave getting partially sucked into the black hole, but coming out intensified. 
And at this point, of course, you put up a mirror. Again, aluminium foil to the rescue, although you might want something heavier in this case. Because when you bounce that light past the black hole again, and you get even more. So you set up essentially a disco ball around the black hole, and now you can get a lot of energy out of it very rapidly. In fact, so much energy so rapidly that I think you can't use a normal material to hold this in. But it looks like it's a very powerful energy source. But as the title Black Hole Bomb hints, you might get too much too fast. You need to be rather careful about this. Yeah. Got to sometimes take the lid off the pot, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, when stuff boils over near a black hole, it's not fun for anybody. Incidentally, this kind of stuff is also a reason to look for weird spectra close to big black holes in the universe to see if there are any super civilizations around. If you find kind of reflection uh, or emission spectra from hot uh, tungsten or tantalum hafnium carbide, then you have a kind of hint that, okay, that's not natural. That's somebody extracting energy from the black hole. Let's talk about a paper that you published in 2021, which is related to this question of how good could the future be? How, what, what could conceivably be achieved? The paper was titled, What is the Upper Limit of Value? Yeah, what did you try to answer in that paper? So it kind of began when Will McAskill was opening a conference by a talk and he offhandedly mentioned that, of course, economic growth has to eventually end because, well, if you have 1% growth and it goes on for a few hundred thousand years, you just get up with get ridiculous numbers. And I started wondering, are those numbers actually ridiculous? And I, I gave him a look and he gave me a look and there was this moment where we both totally understood what the other were thinking. And I started kind of uh, calculating away while uh, loosely listening to the rest of his talk. And I ended up tweeting a bit about it. And David Mannheim, my co-author, was at the back of the room and started tweeting back. So in the coffee break, we already had this loose idea for the paper. And at first we started thinking about economic value. So the standard thing people say is, of course, economic growth can't go on forever because there are material limits. There is only so much stuff in the world. And given that I tend to think about big futures, first of all, we can recycle and reorganize stuff using maybe nanotechnology and biotechnology. So there is actually way more stuff uh, available even on Earth than most people think. And there is a big universe outside. It's a big finite universe we can reach, but still the amount of stuff is astronomical. But a sensible uh, opponent would say, yeah, right, Anders, exponential growth will always outrun any finite number relatively soon, so that's not going to actually work. But there is a more serious problem. The Mona Lisa is worth a lot of money. Why is it worth that? Well, we're willing to pay that to have access to the Mona Lisa, and that has very little to do with the atoms in the Mona Lisa. In fact, if I switched around the atoms in the Mona Lisa for some other atoms, I would probably decrease the value of a painting because it's no longer the original. The fact that it's the original Mona Lisa makes it very, very valuable. And that value resides in our minds. We are willing to pay a lot for the Mona Lisa, at least if we like it and have a lot of money. So the thing about economic growth is that you could imagine a world that doesn't change very much materially, but we're appreciating it ever more. We would be willing to pay more and more for the world. And you would still have economic growth that seems to go on forever. So that was the start of a paper. Okay, so, so the background is, you could ask the question, what is the upper limit of mass? Or what is the upper limit of the energy that we could get out of the universe, you know, given an unlimited amount of time and uh, the best technology that, that, that could ever be created? And I suppose that would have a 
probably it would have a it would have a clear answer unless physics turns turns out to have some big surprises for us. But here you want to say not how much how much matter is there that we could grab, but rather how much value could we get from that? And and I suppose value is this subjective concept. So it's kind of how much well being could we get out of it, or how much preference satisfaction could we get out of it? What what idea did you have of what value is? Exactly. We started with economic value, but that is relatively uninteresting compared to the other forms of value, preference satisfaction, pleasure, or whatever truly is valuable. And it used to be that asking how much energy is there in one kilogram of matter was a nonsense question. Matter is matter and energy is energy. And then Einstein showed up and said, actually, they're the same thing. And uh, it turns out that it matters quite a lot that you can turn matter into energy in the nuclear reactors. A bit later, the idea was, well, how much information could there be in one kilogram of matter? And again, at first, it seems like a non sequitur. Information and matter have nothing to do with each other. But actually, you need matter to encode information. And as we developed theories about quantum field theory applied to information, etc., it turns out that there are interesting limits here on how much information you can get from one kilogram of matter. So that, of course, leads to the question, how much value could you have with one kilogram of matter? And one way of reasoning about this is to think about brains. So I have uh, 1.4 kilograms of brain, hopefully, and that can represent some form of value. There is the biggest value I can think of and maybe the biggest value I can feel or experience in some sense. It's some complicated organization of my neural activity, and that is linked to how much information I can store in my brain. And there is an upper limit to that simply because it's a finite amount of information storage. So that actually puts an interesting upper limit. Now, you might say, yeah, but something might be more valuable than you can name, Anders. And there is an interesting issue in the paper on how you encode value. Because obviously you could imagine a computer memory that just has a number representing value. And for every bit (laughs) you'd add you get twice as many numbers you can represent. So you can represent very, very, very big numbers. And you also get a lot of numbers. But there is always going to be that biggest one. What really matters, of course, is that if I get offered the Mona Lisa and Raphael's uh, fresco, the Academy of Athens, and I have a choice between them, uh, okay, which one do you want to buy? I'm going to have to evaluate them, and I like the Academy a little bit more than the Mona Lisa. So I've done this comparison of these enormous vast values, whether that is in terms of money or in terms of how much I actually appreciate them as wonderful pieces of art. Now, imagine that we have something, some artwork that is just saturating my sense of value. I can't really compare that to another artwork that also saturates my sense of value. Both of them are just incomparable. They're just at the top. You might also say, yeah, but this is kind of normal value, isn't it? You're thinking about some big number here, but a human life is worth more than any amount of money in most ethical systems. In practice, we have to do trade-offs and that makes us feel very bad. But if, if everything is fine, we can always say, yeah, or you can always choose one human life above any amount of money. But you can, of course, encode that one too. It just still keeps requiring information. I need to keep a tally of how much money or how much pleasure there is and how many human lives are at stake. And human lives always have priority. And then maybe there is something that has priority above human lives. Maybe post-humans are even more valuable. A single post-human is actually more valuable than any amount of humans. I, I don't think that is the case, but maybe it's a weird ethical system it is. So you could actually even have this ladder of values going up. But 
a finite brain with a finite representation capacity still can't make these comparisons. It still ends up having these biggest numbers uh, or biggest representations that would essentially correspond to, okay, this is infinite value for me. I can't find anything that is higher. And of course, at this point you say, yeah, but we have more brains than your brain, Anders. We can actually have several <laughs> brains representing things. But again, there is only a finite amount of matter and energy in all these brains that can represent value. So it could very well be that from some kind of outside moral standpoint, there are values that are so big that no brain can represent them, but they just exist out there in the universe. The brains themselves can't compare them. They can't choose between these super big values. We are just going to be always confused and say, well, they feel about equal to me. Yeah. Okay. So the argument is something like, Valuing is a process that requires information to be encoded and information to be processed. And there are just maximum limits on how much information can be encoded and processed given a particular amount of mass and given a finite amount of mass and energy. And so that ultimately is going to set the limit on how much valuing can be done physically in, in, in our universe, no matter what things we create, no matter what minds we, we generate, there's going to be some finite li limit there. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, that's, that's basically it? Uh, that's it. So in some sense, this is kind of trivial. And I think uh, some readers will no doubt feel uh, almost cheated uh, because they wanted to know that metaphysical limit for value. Uh, and we can't say anything about that. But it seems very likely that if value has to have to do with some entity that is doing the valuing, then there is always going to be this limit. Especially since the universe is inconveniently organized in such a way that we can't get hold of infinite computation power as far as we know. Yeah. Okay, so the disagreement I got into with people on Twitter was more along the lines of thinking about it from like an economic growth or from a, from a technological advance point of view, where I wanted to say, you know, for a given amount of matter, no matter what goal you're trying to accomplish, no matter what like what thing it is that you value that you're trying to, 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 to maximize for, there's going to be some best way, there's going to be some optimal way of structuring and organizing all of that matter and energy in order to accomplish that goal and produce that that value that you want. And so there's this, there's just like this, this fixed up a bound that we're trying to trying to get towards. And you know, we can we can get incrementally closer and closer, you know, asymptote up to 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 that level. But but that sort of sets the maximum. And so at some point, growth either has to slow down very rapidly as you approach uh, as as you approach that limit, or it just has to stop entirely once you've actually hit the 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 optimal configuration that there is. And and people responded saying. Well, why does there have to be a best way? Maybe, maybe there isn't a single best way. And in fact, we could just keep improving the way that we're organizing things and eking out, you know, a one percent uh, improvement on it forever. <laughs> and, and to me, to me, that sounds a bit crazy because in that case, you would end up being able to produce an infinite amount of value, an infinite amount of the goal would be accomplished with a finite amount of, of matter. So, so, th so that's kind of a counterintuitive to me. But yeah, do, do you want to uh, talk about it from this more engineering standpoint, maybe? Yeah, I, I think the tricky part is. Uh... Finding that optimum, again, every bit of extra information doubles the search space. So if I have two kilograms of matter to organize into the best thing ever, that's not just going to be twice as many things to search through, but depending on the number of atoms, something like two to the power of 10 to the power of 32 uh, times search space. That's astonishingly, horrifyingly big. Now, Normally, engineers don't feel totally dumbfounded just because they have a big rock in front of them and are supposed to do something. Uh, because mostly we use a very simple search. We have simple approaches to making high-value products. Uh, 
And uh, quite often it consists of taking previous products uh, in a catalog of electronic components and mechanical pieces and putting them together in some clever way. So we combine things and we're searching for this enormous space of combinatorial uh, explosions uh, that emerge when you can put a lot of stuff together. But most stuff doesn't make any sense. Most electronic circuits you can uh, write down, of course, are total nonsense. And most electronics engineers don't write down nonsense circuits because that's boring. They're trying to make something that acts as an amplifier or a radio. So that kind of search is interesting because it's an intelligent search. And quite often it can get quite optimal by using good theory. So if you go into antenna engineering, you find people doing awfully clever things to make great antennas with various properties. And they use various sophisticated theories to figure out what we need to design and then put things together like that. There are other domains where we don't have great uh, knowledge of what's going on. So it's more trial and error. The medieval cathedrals were to a large degree built using trial and error, but also model building. And then of course you copy the successful cathedral in the neighboring town and try to make a slightly larger one. So there are ways of searching for these spaces but they're not necessarily that effective because the space of possibilities is so vast. But here is the funny thing. In some domains, I think we can get very close to the optimum. Uh, we can kind of prove that we don't have many more percent uh, to go. For example, information transmission. We know the speed of light uh, is a limit. Can we make uh, faster transmission through optical fibers? Well, it depends on the refractive index. So we have a trade-off. Um, you usually want a high refractive index to keep the light confined very well, but at the same time that slows things down. So what happens is that you decide on the trade-off and most of the signals in these fibers run about a third of light speed. But you know how far you could go. And if you really wanted to get it faster, you used a laser through vacuum instead. So the problem in getting these best products might be that in some domains, the search might actually go on for a very long time. But in other domains, we will be done relatively soon. Now, getting back to that Twitter argument, because I think it's an interesting one. Where are the domains that seem to be complex? Well, there are obvious things like art and complicated things like pieces of software and systems where the goals are not even well defined, like peace in the Middle East or how to live a joyful life. In these cases, it might be that you can keep on innovating quite a bit and even do significant innovations for a long time. I have a feeling that many of the ones I named actually turns out from a post-human perspective in a few million years to be, mm, actually, that was pretty easy. And then the post-human go on about the real problems they're having because they are seeing other complicated problems. We know in mathematics that there are certain theorems that have proofs that the shortest proof is astronomically long. We can kind of prove that the proof is hopeless, but we can't <laughs> actually get the darn uh, proof. And in most cases, we would not even care because that very long proof is utterly uninteresting and boring. It's more cool to know that it's a very long proof. So computational complexity is something that matters much more than we normally think. Right now, I'm engaged in a little bit of thinking about its economic implications for optimizing economies. Uh, there are other limits there that are surprising and confusing. Uh, and I think when it comes to kind of the limits of technological growth, I have a feeling that eventually we're going to be close to that we have most of the primitive pieces we can put together to do anything we need. So if you suddenly realize I need to put together something that can do this, you can easily manufacture it. But 
what kind of spacecraft is the best one? What is the friendliest building you can make? People are still going to keep <laughs> on innovating that and actually having it very open-ended because the goals keep on changing as you advance the technology. Is there any deeper question here about the nature of the universe? So I suppose one point of view or one expectation you might have is that if you've got some goal, like you're trying to, I don't know, travel between two stars, within a not un- unimaginable amount of time, we will just figure out the relevant principles and we'll design the best thing, or, or at least we'll figure out on, on a blackboard, like what is the best possible material that you could use for this, uh, given our understanding of physics? Uh, you know, what, what is the best possible engine design? And there's not going to be any surprises. There's not going to be uh, further surprises because we basically have solved science, more or less. And I guess another view would be, Material science is going to remain full of surprises potentially. And, you know, in in a finite amount of time, in the amount of time that we have in the universe, we're never actually going to be able to complete things and figure out in principle what is the optimal way of designing a, a spaceship. It feels like th- there might be some kind of quite interesting underlying into like differing in intuition that people have here about the nature of the world. Mm. I, I do think these are profoundly different intuitions and they matter. Uh, the late Peter Eckersley made a bet with Toby Ord uh, many years ago that by the time we meet uh, aliens, uh, technological um, uh, progress would have ended. We had essentially invented everything that we need to invent. And uh, Toby thought this was the case. Peter didn't believe this was the case. And both were fairly confident about it. Uh, And it's a really good question because we have evidence kind of both kinds. So when thinking about making the best possible interstellar spacecraft, it seems like if I want to design, let's say, a solar sail and I use a laser to project on it to it, the design space is not necessarily super large. And there might actually be an optimal solution. Uh, you, maybe you want to use lithium fluoride and the certain wavelengths and certain setups, and you can find the optimum. It might also be that mm, you say, yeah, actually, I want a rocket. And because of that, I need a very different design. And some of the design space is much bigger because now you need all the rocket engine stuff. And that's got many more dimensions. It's much harder to search through. Or you could say, I want a generation spaceship. Which means that suddenly you have a space habitat, it's, it needs to be self-sustaining well enough, it needs to maintain a society stable for a very long time, and it needs to have a lot of very big engines. These three ships, in some sense, optimize for very different things. Which one is the best? Well, it depends a little bit on what you want to do. If you want to get to the destination fastest, that laser-propelled solar sail is probably going to be the best one. Uh, if you want to send uh, a fairly largish but not enormous cargo, uh, the rocket might be better. Uh, but generation ship is good if you actually want to send people. The problem here is, of course, there is no best answer to what you want to use it for. That depends on who you are and what your aims in settling the universe is. Uh, you can find optimum when the problem is very well defined. There is probably a material that conducts electricity at a given temperature the best. And one day we will just have this in a future version of a physics textbook. So you just check that, okay, this needs to work at 200 degrees Kelvin. Okay, it's this obscure material and it has these properties. Of course, any real engineer will say, yeah, but maybe that's too expensive or maybe it has other awful properties. The perovskite uh, solar panels people are working on right now seem to be great as solar panels, except that many of them use lead and cadmium. Hmm, not very environmentally good if we put a lot of lead and cadmium into the environment. We actually need to replace those elements in the solar panels, but still keep the perovskite uh, properties that are lovely on their own and so on. These trade-offs 
are tricky because there might not be a right or wrong. It might just be what you value the most. Similarly, think about collecting all the energy from a star using a Dyson sphere. Okay, how do you do that? Well, you put uh, solar panels around it and convert it to electricity, or you put mirrors heating up little elements and use uh, thermal engines, which actually is more effective because you can use more of the sunlight. Then you start thinking about the cooling and you realize, hmm, I actually want cooling systems that are much bigger than the Dyson sphere. And I need to transport waste heat efficiently from the inner part to the outer part. And when you do that calculation, I did it in my book, you end up with needing 27 Jupiter masses of hydrogen. At which point you go, wait a minute, I can't get 27 Jupiter masses of hydrogen in the solar system. I can't use this design. It's kind of useless unless I can very cheaply import Jupiters, which even on this scale sounds rather implausible. So I might (laughs) have to settle for something that's actually less effective. So I can imagine in the future, these future engineers having this design meeting about how to encase the sun in a Dyson sphere and having big arguments about maximum energy output versus maximum efficiency versus minimum material use. Or some people saying, yeah, but this is going to be too expensive. We can use cheaper methods of building it. And in the end, nobody's right or wrong here. It's kind of just what you set up uh, as your goals, as your society or a company or whatever it is. Of course, we might then say, yeah, but maybe there is an optimal society that's best. But again, the degrees of freedom in minds and societies seem to be so big that our chance of searching that one out or finding that general theory that tells us this is the best society look rather slim. Yeah. As you're talking, I was just thinking of different models that one might have of how one converges on the best possible design for accomplishing some goal. I guess in my mind, uh, I have this model where we're asking the question, what is the number that is closest to one? And I'm going to say one. We can't do any better than that. It's just one. And at some point we get to one uh, or like, we, you know, we... Uh, we say one is the closest number to one, and then and then we're done. Uh, so there's another uh, way you could think of it is what's the number that's closest to one that's not one, and then you could just keep going on. So you got like 0.9, 0.99, 0.999, 0.9999, 999, and every time you add a digit, you get you get just a little bit closer. So you've never you've never quite gotten there, but you can keep progressing ever 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 closer. An alternative model, which maybe the the people who have this idea that well. There's so many different combinations of things. There's almost an unlimited way that you could c- combine stuff. And the search space is so vast. And I guess in their view, you can't predict ahead of time what designs necessarily are going to be, to be better than others. It's, it's more like saying, uh, you know, I've thought of a real number between zero and one. And, and that's the right one. Can you, can you predict it? And the thing is, there's an unlimited, like there's an infinite number of numbers that you could state between, between zero and one. And so, you know, you can always potentially get, get closer or, or, or further away from that number, but you're basically never going to hit it. <laughs> be, be, because uh, there's just an infinite number of choices that, that, that are available. And, you know, finding out that it's not 0.2 doesn't really help you <laughs> at all. Yeah, a lot of it depends on how do you go about engineering this? How do you go about designing it? Uh, and uh, it depends a lot on the kinds of constraints you have. Uh, for example, in actual engineering, you care quite a bit about cost. Um, certainly, you could make a very useful device uh, often by using gold as a mat- building material, but mm, the price of that, uh, that makes it awkward. And quite often, you have these complicated trade-offs like this is a great material, but it has a low melting point, and that material has a high melting point, but uh, also awkward magnetic properties. And that complicates the design process. Now, real engineers have methods of handling this in many domains we understand fairly well. And obviously in the future, we're going to keep on developing these understandings in new domains. But that quite often takes a lot of effort. 
when people started building metal bridges, it took several decades before people got good at it. There was a lot of horrifying bridge disasters as people were finding out the hard way about material strength, how things can shear and buckle in the wrong way. And eventually we got the standard methods to calculating it, and now we got really amazing computational tools for it. But computer science is still kind of in the, the, the bridge building, early bridge building phase. We have a lot of horrifyingly bad software that bends and buckles all over the place. And we're trying to develop better tools. But again, the software engineering world has advanced a lot since the 90s when I got started with computer. Well, I started in the 80s, but that was just hobby stuff. But still, in these decades, we still are rather far away from figuring it out. And indeed, we seem to be going slower than the bridge builders because in some sense, software is much less constrained than uh, bridges. Bridges are, they're nice, they're metal. They're standing there across a river or a gorge or something and they're fairly simple designs. While software can be almost anything... I think when we imagine a universe where civilization trying to produce value, it's it's very natural, at least for me, to think about it in consequentialist terms. So to think about how you can produce the maximum amount of flourishing or happiness or preference satisfaction or, or, or whatever. But of course, th- there's other theories of ethics and value, like deontology, where it's it's about following rules, uh, virtue ethics, where it's about cultivating virtue in, in the beings that are there. Uh, and there's other people who don't really think that there is any real idea of ethics. It's just about doing kind of whatever fits your subjective taste. What might the universe look like if it were designed to create the max, the most value from those other points of view about, about what's best? So virtue ethics is probably the simplest because you basically have this universe inhabited by virtuous beings that are, if we imagine that Aristotle was right about everything, they're now trying to live their life uh, in an excellent way. They're honing whatever it means to be that kind of creature. So if they're human-like, they might uh, want to have honest social relations. They want to be courageous, uh, not too uh, foolhardy and not too cowardly, but finding the golden mean and so on. This gets really weird, of course, when you start thinking about artificial beings. What is a virtuous robot? Well, it's fulfilling. It's robot nature to the maximum. Now, if I designed it to do certain things, that seems to make things simple. But if it's a kind of general being that is actually having open-ended goals, they might actually be quite different and weird. And this, of course, does show up a lot because we have a particular evolutionary past. We have a lot of little quirks just because we evolved the way we did. And some of them probably affect a lot of the virtues. Uh, After all, our emotions, they are quite densely tied in with virtue ethics. And it seems to me that uh, a different species that has slightly different emotional ranges or emotional states would end up with very different virtues. Also, there is this very cool question that maybe there are also virtues on a group level and on a civilizational level. So Toby touches on this very briefly in his book, The Precipice, where he talks about that maybe we should say that uh, civilization can be more or less prudent, that it actually is a good idea to ascribe a virtue to an entire civilization. And I think there is something to that. Victor Hugo, the author, uh, said that uh, war is the vice of a civilization and peace is its virtue. In some sense, that, uh, this is what virtuous civilization should be doing. They should try to maintain their internal peace. Now, a virtue ethicist would say it's not enough to just do nice stuff. You need to do it for the right reasons. There need to be reasons inside the civilization to keep it on the straight and narrow. So uh, we might imagine an uh, honest and truthful civilization 
Well, they do check their epistemic standards. They make sure that they're making rational decisions and that the science is done in an unbiased way. We might have a prudent civilization where there are internal values motivating them to research existential risk and taking precautions against them. So a universe organized with this might actually look quite uh, a lot like a, a utility-maximizing universe, except that it's less likely to really zoom off and expand very fast. The utility maximizer will tend to get a lot of utility, and most utility functions tend to assume more is better, whether that is more happiness or more computation or something. So the maximizing mindset tend to rush off. You could have a satisfying mindset and say, yeah, it levels off after a while. You actually don't need all the galaxy clusters to run pure happiness, <laughs> only a lot of them. The virtue universe, on the other hand, might not necessarily be quite as expansive. But again, that depends on what the virtues are inside here. And we might discover new virtues. Uh, there is talk about environmental virtues, for example, that the ancient Greeks wouldn't exactly recognize them because they didn't have that much of an environmental impact. Well, strictly speaking, they did. They were cutting down all the forest in Greece. And even the ancient Greek philosopher kind of recognized that, yeah, if not everybody can have our wonderful standard of life we have here in Athens because there is not enough firewood, which was an accurate observation, but solved by finding other energy sources. So you could imagine these environmental virtues, uh, they apply on a larger scale. I'm not supposed to kill off species, but I don't do that on an individual level. It's rather that we as a society, should not kill off species. And we need to do that in a joint form. Now, the interesting thing might be that an advanced civilization might discover entirely new domains to be virtuous about, whether that is caring for solar systems and stars and maintaining the galaxy in a proper manner, or some weird post-human virtues we can't even imagine. So that was the virtue case. Now, the deontological case is interesting because... Some deontology, of course, uh, might actually just be some form of consequentialism in uh, drag. Uh, Rule utilitarianism is very good at looking like deontology. And I can totally imagine that some deontologists actually have rules that are actually secretly maximizing and uh, doing things on a consequential level. But deep down, the idea is, yeah, you're not supposed to break important rules of conduct. And most of them, of course, tend to happen uh, normally, we formulate them on a societal level. Uh, this is one reason why consequentialism and deontology tend to be more popular in, uh, in public discourse than virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is lovely when you try to set up your own life and live a good life, but it's very unclear how to run a hospital by virtue ethics. Yeah, you want the best uh, doctors and nurses, they should be excellent, but how do you manage things in an excellent way? Oh, it's very individual. It's not clear at all uh, how much money you should be putting into the different department. Um, meanwhile, the consequentialists will coming up with a spreadsheet and the, the deontologists will say, yeah, there are certain principles of medical ethics we need to apply here and they are going to constrain what you can do. But within those constraints, it's kind of almost arbitrary. Then at that point, uh, you're probably going to fall back on some kind of loose virtue ethics. You're going to try to do something good or something that fits with other things. So when you try to scale up the ontology, it seems like it's more about these big bounds on what do you do with the universe. The most obvious one might be that maybe you shouldn't be expanding too much. There is an interesting discussion about uh, astronomical suffering risks. So on one hand, if we want to avoid going extinct, we should spreading out all over the place because that minimizes the probability of something going bad for all offshoots of a human species. But 
you also add a lot of potential for suffering here. If we terraform millions and millions of planets and have lovely jungles and the ecosystems there, there's probably going to be quite a lot of animal suffering there. And maybe inhabitants also having a bad day. So the total amount of suffering in the universe goes up a lot. So already from a consequentialist standpoint, okay, if suffering gets priority, this is really bad and we shouldn't be doing that expansion. The deontologists might have something similar to say that maybe actually increasing the risk of astronomical suffering is an absolute no-no. We must actually abstain from that. So we need to expand just just the right amount to reduce risk, but not anymore. Now, the really interesting problem for the kind of deontologist in this cosmological future is we better agree on these rules beforehand, because once you get separated by time and space sufficiently, it's going to be very hard to agree on the rules. Of course, if you're a true believer Kantian, you're going to say, yeah, but any rational being is just sitting down thinking carefully enough about the fundamental moral principles is going to converge to the same ethics. I, I think, yeah, right. I don't believe that is the case. <laughs> I might be wrong, of course. It might be that post-human Jupiter-brained uh, moral philosophers all think alike because there is actually the one true way of doing it. But it might be that you end up with incompatible uh, deontologies, actually, when you think things through. Yeah. So there is a lot of space here for really interesting different takes on uh, what we should be doing with the universe. So it feels to me like once you start thinking about, well, we're going to create the most virtuous being and then we're going to like create a, an enormous population of trillions and trillions of these extremely virtuous beings acting virtuously like that maybe something has been lost about the spirit of virtue ethics where i didn't really i i, I didn't get the vibe that that is what the virtue ethicists were trying to do was to maximize the amount of virtue across the universe that feels like a consequentialist it feels like a utilitarian take on on virtue ethics that is a little bit strange i think that's true I, and i'm probably naturally just drawn towards that i'm just uh, always going utilitarian whether i want it or not uh, indeed it's very interesting to think about not grand futures, but humble futures. Uh, because a lot of people are totally cold uh, to the idea of moving galaxies and having trillions of beings in some weird astronomical future. Uh, I usually express it like, yeah, they want to have a, this nice little Cotswolds village uh, where, where their friends are playing cricket. They're having a tea with the vicar and having sensible social relations with normal people. And then, yeah, it needs to be sustainable and peaceful and all of that. But you don't need an entire galaxy to do that. And I think there is a lot of truth to that this is quite close to what most people think is the good life. And it's certainly much easier to think about virtue ethics in that little British village or whatever the Swedish or Chinese counterpart are. The, the real question is, of course... Mm, would it be good to just have that? And I tend to think that we are so uncertain about normativity that we should hedge our bets. I think it's actually probably a better idea uh, to that some people are living in these nice little humble futures and others go off and uh, terraform planets and build Dyson spheres and whatnot. Because we might don't know which one of these ones is the right one, but we might be able to get the right one uh, by having a big palette of possibilities. The real problem is when they impinge on each other. The nice little village might not want the night sky. They're scarred by having mega structures flying around there. So there might have to be some deal about leaving the sky dark, etc. Um, there are some people who are very upset that anybody in the world might be having fun in the way they morally disapprove of. So they have no preferences. And they're, of course, going to be very annoying neighbors. Uh, and 
we need to resolve these kind of problems. That gets into this issue of how do you make a cosmopolitan ethics, especially if humanity becomes much more diverse. But I'm kind of taking cheer by the fact that the Amish seem to be doing pretty well. They are living in some sense in a humble uh, world, deliberately making a humble society, but it's also being protected by one of the least humble societies you can possibly imagine, the United States. <laughs> and they have a right kind of relationship to the outside. Uh, over the decades, there have been interesting discussions about both how to prevent too many young people going off into the sinful outer world and realizing that this is actually quite wonderful, and instead setting up things so they can both maintain each other. And it works, partially because the values of the United States and the rights cataloging the laws and the rule of law can act to protect it. And you can maintain humility and a humble future inside something much more grand. And I guess this might also be the solution for how to get virtue in these grand futures. It might actually start out as small nuclei. You actually don't want to go to maximize the universe. You want to ensure that there is nuclear virtue that if they're really good and attractive might expand instead of saying, first, we optimize everything for it. So I think this gets to one of the, my big uh, things, and that is we need to have an open future. Existential risk is kind of an ultimate closed future. Okay, it's the end of history. But you can also imagine futures that are too limited, where there are too few possibilities and certain choices and options are not there. And I think we need to safeguard against those, even if they're otherwise pretty nice futures. What's the most surprising or remarkable piece of science that you ran into while researching and, and, and writing this draft? The one thing that really hit me as super weird and profound is that if you have a universe that actually expands forever, eventually everything that is bound together will dissolve. Uh, So when you're dealing with the heat death of the universe, most thinking uh, people have tends to be something like, uh, uh, okay, yeah, eventually energy runs out, it gets very cold and very stable and very boring. But you could at least imagine a rock sitting around there essentially forever unchanged. Already that was in doubt. Freeman Dyson pointed out that quantum tunneling is actually going to kind of liquefy the rock over sufficiently long periods of time. Everything will randomly move around. But it turns out that there's something even more profound going on. Because the universe tries to minimize free energy, which is kind of the energy minus temperature times entropy. So... Normal chemical reactions happen because you go from mixing something together and they react and go to a lower energy state. And that happens spontaneously. Some weird chemical reactions happen instead because entropy increases so much. They might actually suck in heat from the environment in order to happen. A classic example is where you have cooling salts you add to water. They dissolve, the entropy goes up quite a lot, but the water gets cold. And this is how you make cold compresses when you have a sports injury. Now. The interesting thing that happens in this very far future is that the temperature of the universe is still finite because of reasons we might get into later. Uh, But then the result is that you can move things apart, of course, very far because the universe has kept on expanding exponentially for a very long time, which means that the entropy theoretically could go very high. That means that things that are bound together actually are energetically favored to fall apart. This is a really weird thing because this happens because of fundamental statistical mechanics. And when I first read it in the mathematician John Bias blog, I felt like, okay, he's a mathematician. Yeah, it makes sense, mathematics, but physicists don't believe in this, right? But actually... So hold on, so, so, so this is going on now, but it just happens extremely slowly? 
But like, it, but it in actually the doesn't of... happen now, and this okay. is fun because this is a little paradox that people started discovering uh, actually a long time ago. When you mathematically calculate the properties of a hydrogen atom sitting in a, a heat bath, it seems like the, if you follow the math it should lose its electron. It should spontaneously ionize and the electron should be going off to infinity. And that sounds very weird because we know hydrogen is a nice, stable thing. Hydrogen atoms uh, sitting there in emptiness are not going anywhere. And the way professors uh, deal with the astute student who's done the calculation and uh, bring this up is to say, yeah, but do the calculation and assume a finite size uh, universe around it, the, the size of a lab. And now you will find that it actually doesn't happen because the, the electron is going to be kept on this, hanging around the atomic nucleus and everything is stable. And of course, in reality, there are other stuff in the universe that acts as a wall of a lab. Hmm. And this is actually where things get profound. One reason matter stays together is that there is other matter around. It's kind of mildly pushing back. In theory, all the particles making us up could go off anywhere else. But there's other matter there and it actually has the effect that mm, from a thermodynamic standpoint, things should keep together. But this is not true in the very far future in a very big expanded universe. And then stuff actually spontaneously fall apart if it's around. So that's the kind of big, abstract, weird, slightly creepy fact. But there's plenty of other lovely little details that I found. Uh, one of my favorite stories is Alexander von Humboldt's uh, parrots. And then there is the color of oxygen crystals and uh, the limits on rocket engines. There is many of these more concrete uh, down-to-earth questions that show up too. But that thing about why stuff falls apart in sufficiently big universes, to me was kind of, hmm, this is giving us a good reason to think that the future actually is limited and finite, but still the amount of time it takes to get there is so big that we don't need to worry too much. Yeah. So I thought that a big issue that would happen, you know, very, very far in the future, we're talking like, was it 10 to a 10 to the power of 100 years or whatever it is, that the universe is expanding and it's expanding at an ever greater rate. And people are familiar with the idea that kind of the galaxies are getting pulled apart. So eventually, you know, other galaxies are receding beyond our ability to reach them, even if we traveled at light speed, because they're moving away from us faster and faster. But at some point, that starts affecting, you know, firstly, galaxies are getting pulled apart, but then eventually stars are also getting pulled apart even within a galaxy. And then I suppose planets are getting pulled apart. And then eventually, you know, atoms are getting pulled apart. And then there's the idea that you've just got one atom that's causally disconnected from everything else. And then it's kind of lost the, the walls that were holding it together. So it disintegrates. Not quite. What you just described is called the big rip scenario. So one of the interesting things about uh, cosmology today is that we know that there is something accelerating the expansion of the universe. And it's usually called dark energy because uh, it mathematically shows up in the cosmological equations as this constant, uh, the, the famous cosmological constant that Einstein first put in to prevent the universe in his model from expanding and then realized that, oh, the universe expanded. Drat, I need to drop it. And then experimentalists realize, actually, we need to add the constant with an opposite sign. It's one of those little awkward facts. And it seems like this dark energy or whatever it is keeps the universe expanding. And the standard vanilla dark energy is just uh, causing exponential expansion. But if you tweak that theory, and given that we don't really know what it is, of course, it's very easy for a theoretical physicist to write a paper tweaking the theory. You can get different behaviors depending on how, uh, when you expand space-time, how much more dark energy do you get? 
Is it just proportional to the volume or is it growing slightly faster or slightly slower? And it turns out that there's one little parameter, W, uh, that if it's less than minus one, then you get an accelerating expansion that also the acceleration accelerates and it gets faster and faster and you end up eventually with a big rip. In a finite time, everything expands apart. And this is where it's not just galaxy clusters slowly drifting apart, but then uh, the stars get ripped apart and eventually atoms. Now, is this something to worry about? There are some people who seriously argue that this might happen in the next 21 billion years, which is kind of a scary prospect, at least from these ridiculous timescales that are normally at just 21 billion years. That's nothing. That's uh, next Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and the fun part is, of course, we have no way of telling because all the measurements of this W puts it almost exactly at minus one, and it's kind of within the error bars. Mathematically, it's much more elegant and reasonable if it's exactly minus one, Mm. but uh, it could theoretically be different. And there is no easy way of making these measurements, but very few people in cosmology seriously think the big rip is the most likely scenario. Now, even without the big rip, you have this drifting apart. Uh, The expansion of the universe makes all space expand, but uh, if you're a human, the molecular bonds making you up will keep you there together. Yes, every morning space-time has expanded slightly and tried to separate your atoms, but they're pulling themselves back together just fine. And the same thing happens with uh, the solar system and the galaxies. It's just that between galaxies and galaxy clusters, at this point, there is not enough attraction to actually keep them from drifting apart. And this doesn't get stronger over time assuming the standard cosmological constant. So in that case, we only get these little island universes of galaxies uh, separated by these exponentially growing uh, voids. The big rip scenario means that you get much more dramatic ending. Mm. Uh, There are some cosmologists who really like it because you avoid other horribly weird things. Now, this is the corner of a book where I'm dealing with the cutting edge of cosmology, where we know we don't know everything. Very many big questions. We're still having this problem that we don't know the Hubble constant, how fast the universe expands, because different measurement methods produce different values. And they're outside each other's error bars, which is kind of called a cosmological tension. It's kind of embarrassing. Something is obviously wrong with how we're doing the measures. Probably it's just a measurement error or a measurement problem, but it might be telling us something profound. But there are these deeper problems that what is dark energy? And I know some physicists who would say, yeah, maybe dark energy decays over time or it increases over time. We're kind of free to assume either. Indeed, uh, it turns out it'd be very hard to measure what it's doing. So you can come up with any theory, but of course, the more complex theory it is, the less likely a priori it is that it's true. Yeah. So most people assume, yeah, it's probably just constant dark energy. Okay, let's let's turn out to, to the question of, the, of, the, of this book as a whole. We, we've just been sampling from lots of different ideas that, that are covered in there. So it's 1,400 pages long, the draft now. 33 hours of listening time at a, at a blistering pace that I tried to put it into my into my uh, audio producing <laughs> software. And, you know, many of the sections are only partly done and there's lots of analysis that I think would is going to have to be checked by someone. Oh, yep. Because uh, yep. it's kind of pretty speculative. And it feels a little bit like you're trying to address almost all the questions that someone could put to you on this topic. Uh, and uh, other people who've seen the draft have slightly referred to this issue as well. <laughs> that, uh, it's, oh, it's, yep. it's, it's, uh, the aspirations of this of this book are, are really momentous, uh, grind, grind in their own right. D- do you think you might need to make it less ambitious in order to try to get it finished in, <laughs> and published in finite time? 
Uh, I think so. Uh, I, I think one good sign is that I'm actually getting pretty tired of it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and that, that is very good because that means I'm not constantly thinking that I need to add everything. Uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I, there is this uh, saying that art projects never get finished, they just get abandoned. Uh, what you want here is they should be abandoned to an editor and a publisher so you actually get something. Uh, and the ambition I had was very much trying to cover what we know somewhat rigorously about the long-term future and can say about it, or even finding the relevant question we might want to investigate. Because a lot of the more speculative part, I think we can answer one way or another. And that is a starting point. And then hopefully we can do future editions or sequels. The, the purpose is very much to get this started and have one, all these things in one place. The problem is, I eventually realized I've also written a very weird textbook about our understanding of the world to some extent. This is very much an overview of physics and chemistry and biology and uh, some parts of anthropology and, and even philosophy and ethics. You could probably use it as a very weird textbook. <laughs> yeah. I'm not certain I would recommend it, but it would be really interesting as a course. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is also what I want. It's a multi-purpose tool. But yeah, it needs to be finished, especially since I got another book competing with it, uh, because I got dragged into writing another one in parallel, because I'm rather stupid. What's what's that one? So that one, uh, the working title is Surfs Up, and I'm writing it together with Cyril Holm, who's a professor of jurisprudence at uh, Stockholm University. And it's about law. It's about superintelligent AI, and uh, it's about uh, Hobbes, Leviathan, and Nick Bostrom's Singleton scenario. It's basically about the question, if we manage to get good AI and it's aligned enough that we can survive with it, does that solve all our problems? Hint, hint, of course not. We actually do get new interesting problems, especially in the line of the social systems we construct. We're basically doing outsourcing a lot of cognition to the legal system and market because we can't keep it in our own mind and we do rather well by spreading it out. But that can be replaced with software. So maybe a lot of parts of our society could be completely replaced by intelligent software, which seems to lead to all sorts of very disturbing consequences that we might not actually want. So the question is, is this true? Uh, is it possible to actually outsource all that to software? And also, could we do something about aligning our society so it's actually quite nice to live in, and even though it might be more effective to run everything in the, by the big AI in the cloud? Yeah. Um, I suppose if you wait another year or two, then uh, GPT-6 might be able to be an amazing research assistant to help you finish <laughs> finish grand features. That, that is the fear. I already tried to use uh, GPT uh, to help me write in grand futures, and I found that I have a problem. A lot of my text is rather dense in facts and uh, numbers. Mm. And this is the one thing that GPT really does badly, ah. because it tends to hallucinate. So I asked uh, it to finish a section about uh, what is a breathable atmosphere for humans. And it came up with a whole bunch of numbers that I felt do I trust them? I don't see any references here. So I started checking them up and then, of course, fell into a very deep rabbit hole about the minimum and maximum viable oxygen concentration. So I certainly learned something, but it didn't finish that paragraph faster for me. It works really well when you have text where you're not caring, caring too much about the truth value. It needs to kind of convey a message in a nice way, but it doesn't have to be perfectly true every sentence. But Grand Futures is the kind of book where I actually want the facts and logic to match up rather strongly. Uh, but 
GPT is great for the kind of doing a good intro and outro for a chapter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, it, it seems like it's not only getting better at uh, writing text, but also getting better at distinguishing reality from from falsehood uh, over time. So uh, yeah, it will be interesting to know at what point does it actually begin to have a grasp of what is real and what is not, and can, or can we can we train that in with reinforcement learning from from human feedback? Uh, so so it could plausibly just just re- like if you ask the right kind of factual question, it will respond and say I don't know, rather than just saying some some nonsense. Yeah, and I think that is a very important aspect of any form of writing. How do you fact check stuff? So a lot of the things in my book uh, are based on standard physics. I'm trying to base it on as basic physics as possible, check with several different sources uh, to make sure I'm not uh, totally putting my foot in my mouth. But then you get to some things that are much more iffy. We actually are at the boundaries of knowledge. So quite often my approach there is to actually list all the possible cases, which is one reason why my book is so thick. I literally have a big chapter about ways we could be really wrong about physics and everything else in the universe, where I try what happens if various physical theories don't work as we expect them to. How much effect does that have? And that is, of course, very fun, but you could, of course, make an infinitely large chapter because they could be wrong in an infinite number of ways. But in most cases, it doesn't matter that much. If general relativity is slightly wrong, it's probably higher order terms, and you still probably end up with black holes and uh, all that gravitational dynamics. So that's not very dangerous. On the other hand, the Landauer limit on erasing information is much more important for my argument. So any discrepancy over there, I need to care much more about them. And then, of course, if you get faster than light transport, uh, okay, now all bets are off. Suddenly you get time travel and uh, time-based computing that is way more powerful than quantum computing, and the universe just turns totally weird. Yeah. Um, Setting aside machine uh, research assistants, do you need need any human research assistants maybe to to help you quickly, quickly finish it off? I would probably need a small army of assistants fact-checking things. But my big problem here is I need to organize them. I realized that I had people helping me and contributing a lot. But they're reading through, they're giving me comments, they're very valuable and deeply, deeply thankful for them. But I probably need also to have a lot of people just going through things. But now I need to take their input and incorporating it in an effective way. And I haven't figured out the right workflow to do that well. So I have this weird limitation that I probably would need some kind of manager for that. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the most uh, reasonable or natural way for you to shrink the scope or the, the scope of the ambition in order to make it more completable? Uh, Part of the biggest problems for me are the chapters dealing with stuff that people have already dealt with in some detail. So the chapter about uh, post-scarcity societies, there is a fair bit of writing about the economics of post-scarcity. There is even more interesting work on the future of manufacturing, especially in the light of atomically precise manufacturing. And that takes a lot of effort to review because there's so much to save. Similarly for sustainability and near-term energy sources. Whoa, there is a big literature. Same thing with the chapter about settling the solar system. The first part about the near-term future, like what life support do you need? How do you build a space habitat? Okay, there is a bookshelf of a bookshelf of things coming out of NASA about that. And that's taking me a lot of time and effort to deal with. It's much easier when I just realize that there is two papers in the entire field and I get to write up what's essentially a third paper. So the parts of a book that actually deal with things other people have been thinking about are harder to finish than the parts where I'm kind of alone with. Yeah, that's that's really quite ironic that uh, 
it's easier to come up with your own speculative theories to answer some question that no one else has dealt with than it is to summarize the existing literature on some more more natural and prosaic question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just think about the problem of sustainability and mankind's relationship to nature. It, there is a vast literature about it, a lot of opinions, a lot of really good books and papers, and I don't have the time to go through them. Yeah. Yet I need to have a section that deals with that. It's super annoying. And at that point, I get annoyed and immediately jump to a chapter and start thinking about, so can I build a, a quantum barrier that prevents any particle from coming through? No, I can show interesting quantum mechanical things and everything is so much nicer than having to go through a big pile of books. Yeah, I guess the risk of making a mistake in one of these chapters where you're the only person who has ever contemplated this question is uh, is higher. But at the same time, when you're pioneering an area and no one else has worked on it, then uh, saying something that is uh, wrong could still be a useful contribution because it's still moving things forward towards uh, uh, towards maybe someone else will fix the fix the problem in future. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm also trying to make use of my imposter syndrome because I'm aware I'm trespassing in a lot of disciplines where I have no real business. I'm not an astrophysicist, but I'm saying a lot of stuff about white dwarf stars. And that means that I'm trying to read from a lot of different sources and make sure that the stuff I'm assuming is very normal. It's not out on a limb, it's in all the textbooks. And then, of course, hopefully I can get a bunch of astrophysicists to fact check it. <laughs> I've already been annoying some white dwarf star astronomers about weird questions about very cold white dwarf star atmospheres. Yeah, uh, there's a saying that the yeah the best way to get uh, a good answer on the internet is to give a wrong answer and then wait for people to correct it. And I can imagine the first edition of this book could could inspire <laughs> a whole lot of feedback that could then make the make the second edition a whole lot more precise. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think that might be useful because ideally, of course, you update and improve on it. Ideally, I want to have a repository of what can we say about the long term future in a useful way. Uh, what can we say about some of the limits? What are the updates? And uh, I, I have several markers in the book where I'm uh, mentioning uh, the current record of uh, fiber optics transmission speed is. And then I just put in a marker, fill in whatever it is going to be by the point the book is published. And there are many properties that are just changing over time that needs to be updated. I'm living in fear that we figure out what dark matter it is and it has a big effect on the book. This is actually one of the main drivers for me to try to finish it fast now so the, the cosmologists and astronomers don't get me. Yeah, yeah. At some, at some point, reality might start pacing you. That's also one of the benefits of trying to write about the very long-term future because it doesn't get obsolete quite as badly uh, as if writing about the next 10 years. Yeah. But still, even that might not help. This is a total aside, but have you been following all the excitement about the discovery of a possible room temperature superconductor over the last few weeks? Uh, this has been a big distraction for me the last 48 hours. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm just so excited about the possibility, even though I appreciate it probably isn't going to pan out. Mm. Uh, I'm also excited about this. And even if it turns out that that LK99 room temperature superconductor turns out to be a flash in the pan and not working... It's still great entertainment uh, because this is also a demonstration of how science actually should work. Uh, people publish uh, some findings, other people try to replicate it, and it's also happening in the open. Of course, in this case, uh, the, it's happening more in the open than ever before because some people are live tweeting what they're doing. And you get to, to actually see a lot of the grotty parts of material science too. And there are interesting issues also about more sensible people trying to figure out what do I need to do to actually prove that I have a superconductor in my lab. 
I used to myself think that this shouldn't be hard. After all, put some electrodes on it, measure the resistance. If it's zero, you got a superconductor. Yay! Except that it turns out that there is both a little bit of resistance even in actual superconductors. Very annoying if you want to store energy for trillions of years and uh, <laughs> stuff like that that I care about. But there is also other properties that you might measure. Uh, one of the more obvious ones is magnetic levitation. But it turns out that with some materials that you can also levitate because they're diamagnetic, kind of opposite of the ferromagnetic materials we normally encounter. So you can get confused by the material behaving weirdly. And there's some materials that have really odd conductance. So actually getting a measurement of zero resistance might actually not tell you you have a proper superconductor. So there is a whole host of other things to measure. And they're fairly complicated. So now the labs are competing to both make the material, and that might be hard, and we don't quite know what needs to go into the crystals to make them really good. And also proving that we actually got something that is a superconductor or that it isn't. It's really tricky, of course, because it might be that uh, it's a hard thing to make, so most people will fail but then occasionally, randomly, you will discover it. But I'm super excited. I think this is a good demonstration also on how much ordinary matter is still full of surprises for us. Yeah, yeah. Some people are a bit frustrated by this. What is it? I think the material uh, they've nicknamed LK99, this kind of LK99 mania. But I feel, I feel like most news kind of makes me feel depressed, whereas this at least is kind of fun. And I'm learning some physics and some material science along the way. And we get to have this kind of shared experience of hoping that, uh, hoping against hope that <laughs> this thing is going to pan out. So uh, it's, it's a guilty pleasure, but, uh, but I think I'm going to keep indulging. I, I don't even think it should be a guilty pleasure. I think this is actually what we should have more of. I, I would love if more science was a bit like, okay, we got this interesting finding. We're all running around trying to make sense of it and uh, doing it in the open. It does happen a little bit in astronomy. When, uh, for example, a gravitational wave observatory detects a strong signal, they immediately send out an alert to all observatories about roughly where in the sky it came from. Please look in this direction. Uh, there are similar things for other forms of transients like neutrinos. And astronomers are then zooming in and trying to find whatever supernova or collision or whatever that thing was. And I think we should have more of it because uh, normally we only get reports about science when it's done or usually press releases from groups trying to make it done. And uh, then journalists turning it into either, oh, yes, we have totally overthrown Einstein or whatever the big theory is. And then you never hear about that finding ever again because it didn't pan out <laughs> or it just becomes part of this is the way reality is. But of course, actual science is very much of a process. Actually seeing how people are trying to replicate things tells you something very important about the world, about science, about scientists. And I think more people should be involved. Yeah, that, that's true. I guess uh, people who might have thought that science was cleaner uh, than it is are probably getting getting very nice, like looking at people's attempts to replicate it, but uh, they're having trouble making it. And then they're not sure whether the measurements they got are really consistent with it or not. It, it shows how, how how challenging science is in reality and how, uh, well, I suppose from another point of view, it's a useful lesson in why, why it could be useful to wait a little bit in order to, to see whether these things are, are really justified. But the, the timelines for podcasts recording and releasing are such that by the time this comes out, people are going to know almost certainly whether whether this has uh, turned out to be le legit or not. But would you like to, uh, would you want to venture a possible uh, prediction about how, how likely this is to, to actually be, be real? I would give it maybe, I think I increased since yesterday. So now I would give it a 15% chance of being real. So I'm still not super optimistic, but 
there are there are theoretical papers suggesting it and uh, uh, matter is weird there is so much strange stuff that happens even in fairly normal materials and this seems to be a fairly complicated material so uh, there is a decent chance of it being a proper superconductor yeah it's, it seems like many of the more serious uh, material science folks are uh, on the skeptical end i i, I suppose uh, is there some reason why it should be very difficult or, you know, really unlikely. Is there a strong theoretical reason in physics or material science why we should think that it's not really possible to create a room temperature superconductor that that is giving people, you know, just just a very skeptical kind of prior whenever they hear that someone thinks that they've done it? Uh, I think, no, there is, as far as I know, no good theoretical reason why you couldn't have uh, uh, the superconductor going up to fairly high temperature. The original superconductors, when people cooled down metals and found that they became superconductors, that theory requires a lot of very nice quantum states, uh, and uh, it makes sense that they can't persist beyond a certain temperature. And then came the liquid nitrogen uh, temperature superconductor showing up in the 80s and kind of shocked everybody that, oh, the reality is more complicated. There are actually weirder ways matter can interact with electrons and form uh, the right quantum states to make superconductivity. And at that point, the floodgates open. There is actually no good reason why you couldn't have more complex materials doing this. There have been, of course, a big recent uh, debate about the high-pressure superconductors. There is uh, accusation of scientific fraud, and it's very hard to test because you needed to do diamond anvil experiments, and uh, not everybody accepts the conclusions, and there is a great deal of animosity. But many people from a theoretical standpoint would say, yeah, that doesn't sound too crazy. And similarly, something that actually works at room temperature, that's... uh, not much weirder than liquid nitrogen temperature. From the standpoint of physics, minus 190 Celsius or 20 Celsius, yeah, both are kind of arbitrary temperature. As long as you're below the melting point of a material, why should physics care too much? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, it's going to be going to be fun to see how things uh, how things play out. Uh, my 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 fingers are crossed. Yeah. Why why do you think we're not getting? more progress in science. I, I mean, I, I guess I have this anecdotal perception that there's way more scientists than there used to be, but where, you know, the hits that we're getting just aren't quite as good as the as, as the hits from the past. That, uh, you know, it used to be the case that a single person sometimes would just revolutionize our understanding of things. And now it takes a thousand people just to make a very minor minor improvement uh, sometimes. Do you agree with that uh, take? And and if so, do you, uh, do you have a preferred theory for, for, for what's going on? I'm somewhat worried that uh, we're not getting as much oomph uh, in science as we ought to do, given all the scientists. And then I put on my cynical hat and say, yeah, but having a lot of scientists doesn't mean that we're doing a lot of work. Uh, Indeed, uh, one can argue that a lot of what academia is doing is a lot of relatively pointless things. It's easy to write a paper that is good for your career, but doesn't actually advance the question. But there are many parts of science that are dealing with concrete problems. People are honestly trying to fix relevant questions in climate change or solar collectors and similar things. And I think one problem is that a lot of the low-hanging fruits have been picked. A lot of the really simple technological ideas uh, have been found. So you need to go further to make something. And now you need to search for a much vaster space of possibility. And you also need to spend a lot more time as an apprentice learning what's going on in the field. Still, I don't think that works really as an explanation. Certainly, you need to learn more to get to the frontier in some domains today than uh, maybe 50 years ago. 
but still, students are bright, and we're actually getting better at educating uh, people. We're actually seeing people jump ahead much more. Uh, I'm sometimes astonished what I see in the undergraduate textbooks, kind of, okay, they're getting this stuff that was in the graduate textbooks just a decade ago. So one problem might simply be that the incentives are not aligned right. Uh, in academia, you're supposed to write these interesting papers, and you want to find and use it problem and try to poke at it and maybe try to solve it. But that user problem doesn't necessarily have to fix things. Uh, in engineering, it's much more important that you actually solve a problem in a way that people can pay for and that you can build. And quite often you have incentives because somebody is paying you to do it. And similarly, you see a lot of uh, problems here in that the incentive structures do get misaligned in many domains. But I don't think this works as a great explanation because you could imagine some universities or organizations uh, setting the alignment right and just uh, sweeping past everybody else and coming up with grand unified theories and the uh, perfect energy sources. And we don't quite see that. We do see interesting cluster effects where you have some really bright person attracting other bright people and together they solve interesting problems really well. Sometimes you do see people opening up the door to a new domain and everybody rushes in and uh, tries to write the first paper about it. But that is, again, relatively rare. I think one big problem is actually that we have a lot of good insights, but it takes, uh, since there are so many papers around, so hard to actually keep track of it, we don't notice these good insights because there is so much noise. So there is a lot of scientists to convince and they get sent papers by all the other scientists, which means that we actually have a serious problem in detecting what's going on. But I'm still confused about this. And in my Grand Futures book, I'm also thinking about, well, what if we got AI? Does this fix the problem or not? And uh, I do various models and end up even more confused because to me it seems almost like, yeah, it might be that you could uh, generate artificial scientists doing much more science. And if the outputs of science allow you to make more si uh, artificial scientists, you could have this finite time takeoff, you get a kind of scientific singularity, and eventually you know all, all that is knowable about science in a finite time. But this depends on the recalcitrance of the scientific problems. And that is kind of independent of how useful it is to get more science for being able to build more AI scientists. It could be that the difficulty just keeps on going up. So actually, it doesn't go that fast. Instead, it kind of levels off and you get a gradual growth. And it seems that these two questions, how hard is advanced science and how much harder does it become as you advance into it, versus how much can advanced science help you build better scientists or the science systems, they're totally independent. There is no reason why they need to be matched in any way. So either science is solvable in a finite time, or it might actually be something that keeps post-humans in a billion years going. And I honestly don't know which one it is. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you my pet theory uh, for this one and see how you, how, you, how you react. So some people have suggested the, this kind of social explanation for why it seems like we're getting less science per scientist than, than we used to. You know, that the incentives are much worse, that the grant-making bodies, they, they make really boring grants now, and uh, that there's bad incentives in academia. And I, kinda, I, I can believe that all of that stuff has gotten worse. But uh, it seems like the amount of uh, you know, amazing discoveries we're getting per scientist has gone down a lot over the last 200 years. Like We're talking more than tenfold decrease, perhaps. And I just it's hard, to, hard for me to fathom that 
almost everywhere, <laughs> these institutions have just been degrading at such a such a phenomenal rate. You, you know, we all have our complaints about the university system, but I think it's just, it's not that bad. Uh, and people still want the glory of finding a, like, people still have the individual desire to, 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 to make breakthroughs, at least some people, surely. So so I think that just, that can't be the full explanation in my mind. And, and, and it does seem like there's, there is just this really natural, obvious explanation f- for what's going on, which is that the human brain is kind of staying the same. It hasn't changed that much in the last 200 years or even that much in the last few thousand years. And the universe and then the questions are kind of staying the same. But there are some questions and some problems that are very easy for the human mind as it's designed to solve. We just kind of intuitively see what the solution is. And so it's very low-hanging fruit. And, you know, Plato could make all of these discoveries in philosophy uh, kind of single, single-handedly. single But as we pick all of the things that are, that are natural for a human mind to, to notice and to realize and, and to fix, the stuff that's left is just really hard for minds of our type. And so and it takes longer, more and more effort and uh, well, the other thing is, you know, our, our machinery, our, our, our tools for doing science have, have improved a lot. But the problem is it's all just kind of bottlenecked, I imagine, in my mind, by the fact that all of this stuff has to pass through the human brain, which is uh, which which we're not getting technological advances on in the same way as we are with, with all of our other tools. So that that's my guess. And and that's what causes me to think, as we're able to create new minds, to engineer new minds uh, in within machines, that could really plausibly lead to this uh, renaissance to this efflorescence in, in science because suddenly you can actually uh, rather than try to uh, reach an incredibly difficult insight for the human mind to grasp, instead you can design a mind or you can experiment with all kinds of different mind structures in order to produce the one that is able to most easily solve some some problem. Uh, what do you make of that? I think it it's a possibility and it's a really cool one because we can actually test it relatively soon. People are certainly working on making AI scientists and there is something very interesting because you might be able to, even a fairly simple and crappy AI scientist, if it's different enough and it demonstrates that it can solve a problem we cannot solve, we kind of know that mm, there is something to this. We now need to just scale it up. So this might be something we could test very soon. And it's kind of an interesting thing because if that turns out to be true, everybody should essentially just uh, jump onto it and let's make a lot of AI scientists. The real problem is, of course, translating their insights into something we can use. But again, it doesn't have to be done by the AI scientist. Rather, you have an AI explainer. You train AI systems to take whatever representations exist in the uh, science AI and translate that into a human form that has the right properties of a mapping so we understand something. And it might, of course, be that a lot of science doesn't fit into human minds at all. We just have to accept that that's the way it is and it's kind of mysterious to us. We can still make use of it. We can still ask uh, the engineering AI to take that in and build that starship or what that thing. It might still be rather humbling if that is true. Because in the past, we tended to assume everything could fit into human minds. If you read Greek philosophers, it's very clear that they believe that there is no unanswerable questions about the universe. Well, some of them were a bit mystical, but most of them were fairly confident that, yeah, if you can get, if you can clearly state a question, there must be an answer and must be findable if you just give it some thought. If you're not able to find the solution, that's just because you're distracted by something. And that keeps on recurring for a long time. You find it in the Enlightenment view of progress, which is, again, very much based on the idea that mm, we can probably solve all the problems uh, we can formulate. So if we formulate some problems about how to improve the world, we will be able to find the solution using the scientific method. And ta-da, the world is going to be better. Now we know that 
the things are not necessarily that easy. There is this weird landscape of difficulties, of problems. I think this is one of the coolest findings coming out of uh, the computer revolution, actually. Theoretical computer science is not so much a theory about computers as the difficulty of problems. And we know that there are problems that are undecidable, or in the mathematics, uh, Gödel undecidable. Uh, We know that there are some problems that Yeah, they have solutions, but you can't find them in less than exponential time, which uh, means that we're not going to find them. Except that some of them can be approximated in clever ways so we can find a solution actually relatively rapidly. The traveling salesman problem takes exponential time if you try to brute force it, but you can approximate it and get it the answer in polynomial time, which is why FedEx and all the other logistics companies are solving it every day and making a lot of money by getting within a few percent of optimal solution. So it might very well be that we have to live with this idea that the world contains some complex stuff that we cannot deal with. And then there is other stuff that is tantalizingly messy. We can almost, but not quite get it. Or here, we can get it, but with a lot of effort. And then there is other stuff that just implodes and turns out to be ridiculously simple. Yeah. My my bastardized understanding of an opinion of the, the physicist David Deutsch is that he thinks that human minds are these kind of very general general understanding machines, and that in principle, we could kind of understand everything that there is to be to be understood in, in principle. And I just don't know why that would be the case. I guess I, I guess I should go back and read his work, which I haven't done. So, uh, so, so that's on me rather than him. But I would just think the human brain is so finite. And I mean, you might have a better sense of what the what what the constraints are, but I'm like, you know, don't 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 humans have kind of a short term memory that's only seven things that you can hold in your mind, and okay, you can chunk them, but you know, they can't put an unlimited amount of stuff in each one of those seven chunks. And you know, I intuitively think in three dimensions, but and then but then imagining think a hyperspace with more than three dimensions is a real struggle for me. <laughs> and that presumably there are other things that could be imagined that are just super intuitive to my mind, given how it's been how it's been wired. And uh, yeah. Mm. I think Deutsch's idea about being a universal explanation machine, there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, we, we have this ability to construct uh, great explanation, and we can also construct things that help us with our explanation. The, the most obvious one is pen and paper. Uh, a lot of math uh, doesn't easily fit into a human mind, but give us a blackboard and a piece of pen and paper and uh, a, a few minutes of time and we can solve stuff that actually you cannot solve just by thinking. Now, the tricky part here is that universality, it's a bit like Turing compute, uh, computability. So Alan Turing's work early on did this amazing thing of showing that his Turing machine was equivalent to almost any other form of computation. It can simulate other Turing machines. And there is this equivalence class where every computer in that class can simulate every other at a certain cost. And this cost is typically a a relatively small factor. In theoretical computer science, of course, a relatively small factor can actually still be astronomical and totally impractical, which I'm going to return to. But the interesting thing is that big class of uh, computations, that has this interesting power of, it can compute some things, but not others, but it's a vast set of computations. Now, in practice, the fact that this computer I'm using right now to record this is equivalent to a computer built out of seashells uh, moved around according to certain rules in the sand on a sufficiently large beach doesn't matter very much because that set of seashells on the beach is such an inefficient computer that it's not going to be able to do the fast Fourier transform needed to record video and audio. It's really a bad audiovisual computer, even though technically... (laughs) 
its equivalent. So you can construct computers out of almost anything, but most of them are very bad computers. The thing that happens with Moore's law is that we're going closer and closer to the limits of physics of making a particular kind of computer that's equivalent. Now, if we think about ourselves as universal explainers, are we likely to be kind of the best possible universal explainer? Not really. At this point, Deutsch would intervene and say, yeah, but we can, using our understanding of the universe, remake ourselves into better explainers. Maybe we get uh, to be cyborgs, connect ourselves to supercomputers and think bigger thoughts, which might be a possibility. But Without doing that, the fact that in theory I could understand any explanations that is understandable might still mean that I'm equivalent to those seashells on the seashore. I'm still not going to be a very effective explainer or understander. So I do think the real question is, can we get enough efficiency in some of these systems? And that is partially a physics question, but partially also a very profound philosophical question about what is the space of problems that we might want to touch. How big are explanations for some of the problems? It's possible mathematically construct problems that have enormously large explanations that uh, we simply cannot get. Most of them are, of course, uninteresting examples, but there is this nagging doubt that maybe some problems we care about, like maybe the Goldbach conjecture in mathematics, also is like that. Maybe there is an answer, but the answer can't fit into a human mind. Yeah. I'll, I'll let our listener have, a, have the final question. Um, what's something that Anders believes that is not widely believed or accepted in the AI extras community or in the futurist community more, more broadly? I have a, a weird uh, suspicion that retrocausation might actually be a thing. And I'm. I, yeah, can I'm, you explain that? Yeah. What, what is it? So normally we have causation moving forward in time. Uh, cause uh, is prior to effect, and uh, we tend to assume this is totally reasonable, but it's really weird. When you start thinking about how does this actually work physically, it's kind of unclear. And even the direction of time is a pretty profound uh, issue. Uh, Why do we get that? Because all the microphysics is actually time reversible, but yet we see an inexorable progression. And usually people make a nice hand wave and say entropy increases. Uh, We go from a low probability state to a more likely one. And that's why we see an arrow of time. But that doesn't explain this causation part. And... There are models of quantum mechanics where actually the future affects the past. Uh, And uh, I have this weird uh, suspicion that maybe retrocausation is more of a thing uh, than we normally think. I don't like saying this. In many ways, this is my coming out as somebody who got this queer belief. Uh, And I'm not entirely comfortable with it. But I still think there is something interesting about that our way of thinking about time might actually be fundamentally rather weird and wrong. And it might be that the way the history of the universe is built is not so much that we have a single state marching forward in time, getting updated one second per second, but actually that there's some parts that get calculated first and then we fill in the blanks, we reach some state and that must have been uh, made by some other things and stuff is actually being done kind of on the fly. The universe might be actually way more weirdly constructed than we normally think. My guest today has been Anders Sandberg. Uh, thanks so much for coming back on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Anders. Thank you. If you liked that one, and I hope you did, you might want to go back and listen to Anders' earlier episodes on the show. There's, of course, episode 29, Where Are the Aliens? Anders Sandberg on three new resolutions to the Fermi Paradox and how we could easily colonize the whole universe. And then episode 33, 
Anders Sandberg on solar flares, the annual risk of nuclear war, and what if dictators could live forever. What a smorgasbord. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell, with mastering and technical editing by Myla Maguire and Simon Monsour. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together always by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>